This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. My friendship to all of you precludes my involvement with any one of you. But if you want to make love, then I do too, and I'll be right there behind you. Greetings, constant listeners, and welcome yet again to The Losers Club, a Stephen King podcast. Today, at long last, we begin an epic journey. Today, we begin our episode-by-episode coverage of Josh Boone and CBS All Access's The Stand, a project we've been discussing for the better part of a year, I'd say. And wow, oh, wow, do we have a lot to say. My name is Rockin' Randall Flagburn, and baby, (laughs) can you dig this panel Mike, introduce yourself. Uh, hi, this is Michael Hamish Linkladder Rothman. <laughs> Don't even think I'm saying his name right, but love his character, and I can't wait to talk to him. Uh, you know, in in our discussion about CBS All Access, the Stan. Um, <laughs> That's officially the title now. Yeah. <laughs> uh, who else is joining me from Chicago? Hey, my name is Justin. Stand in the place where you are now. Head west. Think about going to Las Vegas to meet Randall Flag Gerber. And it's nice. great to be back on the pod uh, talking all things The Stand. I know we did a lot of this a couple years ago, and I know at the start of the pandemic, you did it all over again. And now we're going to do it all over again. <laughs> yeah, speaking of, if you, didn't, uh, if you haven't listened to our episodes on the 94 miniseries, uh, sort of in celebration of the pandemic, we uh, we <laughs> revisited the four of all four parts earlier this year. It was a Patreon exclusive that we recently made uh, free to everyone. So enjoy that. And of course, you can always go back to what 2017 when we initially discussed the stand. So we've just talked about this quite a bit. But I am happy to have uh, our next panelist because the stand is a very close book to you. Is that is that not true, Jen? That is true. Yes, this is uh, Jen Franny Adams, and this <laughs> <laughs> um, I was actually I, I t- tweeted a minute ago. I was getting a little emotional when I was like watching it, and when I was like getting ready to record this because like this is I think this was really my entryway into Stephen King, and I think yeah. about like how much that has influenced like the rest of my life, and that mm-hmm. it's just like, and I, I realize it's not a perfect book, and it's not a perfect show but it's just it means so much to me I can't believe that it's actually here and I can't wait to dig into it so yeah Yeah, I actually had a very similar reaction I was talking to my wife about it like I was almost like like nervous to start the screeners because like a I want it to be really good and you know and it sort of is suspended in this state of potential until I start watching it and Mm -hmm. also I'm like I was telling my wife, I was just like, this is the reason I got into Stephen King was like the 94 miniseries and and then the book. And that obviously shaped a lot of my life. And so it's it uh, it's 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 it feels like momentous to dive into this, uh, which but I think that sort of like even when even if we do struggle with certain aspects of things, I think like uh, there's still a joy and uh, I don't know, there's something fun about discussing it. So what were you going to say? Absolutely. 
Yeah, I, I was thinking the same thing. I mean, because every time anyone asks, like, oh, how did you get involved or influenced into Stephen King? And, like, I, I say, you know, the three things. It's, like, one is, like, finding, like, a copy of The Shining um, in my my dad's, like, you know, friend's house or something like that. And then, like, the pet, the poster for Pet Cemetery. But I really do think that it is the original Stan miniseries uh, from 94. And it was very similarly, like emotional like coming into this just because not only has the does the story mean a lot but like the road to this has been insane like i remember hearing about the production for this like long before i even knew anyone on this podcast um you know like this has been in discussion since like the aughts and like even just writing the review for consequence yesterday in which i found myself uh feeling a lot like uh lloyd henry at some points uh (laughs) in my room um just losing my mind uh but um I, I it was kind of wild to think of just how long the road has been to get to this moment. So yeah, similar to you, Randall, like starting these screeners, it felt very there's a ceremony that I don't usually have involved with any sort of pre screener sort of thing that definitely took place this time. You know, there's also the please let it be good, please let it yeah. be good, yeah. and <laughs> before I push play, I can still like think oh this is going to be amazing you know and then reality so yeah. you know. sure yeah, it's been a, it's been kind of a roller coaster for me too just because of you know the, the josh boone of it all you know who's <laughs> who's been through the ringer uh off screen he's been through the ringer on screen and you know uh, we can talk a little bit more about that as we as we go on but uh yeah uh mike why don't you just briefly because i know you were doing some research on it yesterday like in like a nutshell, what was the what's been the like the development process of this, uh, or at least the stand in general? Because like it was happening pre Boone. Well, you know they say cause a wheel, Randall, and and, <laughs> and by they I mean uh, you know Stephen King, uh, and it's very weird how similar the the developmental hell slash process of this miniseries is compared to the 1994 miniseries because. And in, in, in that sense, and actually the, the road to that miniseries is even longer because that started in the late 70s with like King and Romero trying to figure out how they could make this into a feature film. And then it, you know, changed hands and then it kept, you know, go, went back and forth between screenwriters and, until it inevitably fell back to King. This also started out with the idea of Warner Brothers being like, all right, let's do a feature film <laughs> before, you know. It, it it just exchanged so many hands. I mean, it was in Ben Ben Affleck's hands for a while, which in hindsight, I still wish that like, especially where he was coming at at the time, which was right around the town. It would have been really interesting, but then he got suckered into those wonderful Batman movies uh, for one. Hey, he released the released the Affleck cut of the Stand. Oh, I, I, let's hope so. Um, <laughs> yeah, he like filmed it, but he just never released it. <laughs> but then 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 Scott Cooper came uh, and was involved for that with, with that for a couple of years, and then that inevitably fell you know in, in, into nowhere into oblivion, and then finally Josh Boone, uh, who had basically got connected with it shortly after the fault in our stars um because that pretty much you know elevated his name and you know i remember when that first was announced and i was like josh boone and then i read up about him and i was like oh he's like a constant reader at heart like i mean even stephen king is in um his directorial debut and so it you know it made sense but man he's been through you know you guys said it before the ringer too because it's like this started out with like him saying, all right, well, we're going to do a feature film. Then he envisioned it like it was going to be like multiple feature films. And at one point, even like four feature films. And then everything got put on ice, which is really weird because it got put on ice around the same time that the King Renaissance was just like peaking. So you're like, it's like a very curious reason why 
this just didn't happen sooner because, you know, when it shattered box office records, you'd think like this would have been the first thing. I mean, on this podcast, I think I was, that was like the first book I said was like, that's what we're going to hear in like a month. And then nothing happened. And then, you know, in 2018, late 2018, early 2019, we start hearing, oh, actually it's going to go to TV again. And now it's going to be a miniseries. So the echoes and the parallels between this miniseries and, you know, McGarris and Stephen King's, there, there are a lot of strong, similar parallels. And what's crazy to think, I was doing the math last night, is that the duration, despite all this time and all of these changes they could do, is not very different than the, the duration that Garris and King also got. I mean, it's, I think it's yeah. a difference of like three hours maybe when you yeah. really chisel it down. So, you know, that brings us here. There's a lot of thoughts I have on just the structure <laughs> and format and where they could have approached this project. Um, you know, I've since moved away from wanting it to just ever be a feature film. I think there, it's kind of a coup in the sense for Warner Brothers and CBS All Access to have this as event television right now at a time when we're not really able to really get that. It's kind of like a unique thing during the pandemic. You know, obviously there's a topical connections, but I still, this is going to be a thread that I'm going to probably be hammering down a lot in these weekly recaps is that this should have been five seasons. And I don't see why they didn't do that. And, and when we did interviews for the press circuit a couple of weeks ago, showrunner Benjamin Cavell, I asked him point blank, um, or someone did, I can't, I think it was one of my questions and someone else had it actually. It was like, was this always just going to be a one-off? You know, did you ever have the idea that you could do more? And they could have, you know, they, they could have actually done more seasons, which is baffling to me. Like you have IP, you didn't rush it out for the feature film during the Stephen King Renaissance. So then you waited and then you're just gonna do a one-off? Like you would literally have a nest egg. It's weird. It's baffling to me that they, they, they didn't have it. And watching these episodes, I've seen six, I'm not gonna spoil or anything. It, it's even clear by the first episode that you're like, God, could you imagine the time that you would have been able to have if you had multiple seasons? You'd mm-hmm. really See, I know able- you and Randall have seen like five episodes, right? Six. So far? Six. 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 Okay. And Jen and I, Jen, you've only seen the first one also. I've only right? seen the first one, yeah. What I'm getting from the first episode is that it feels like it's still going to be the same story, more or less, that we got from the miniseries, but we're just going to spend a little bit more time with the characters on their on their way to you know Las Vegas or on their way to, mm-hmm. to Boulder. Mm-hmm. Is that about right? Is that, yeah. is that what they're kind yeah, of doing? Yeah, I'd say so. I think that's actually a good... Um, a good way to pivot into our first section, uh, which is the road so far. This is basically a chance for us to talk about the larger episode, the structure of the episode, the themes of the episode, um, and the story, obviously. So, yeah, I think, um, I think like it's the beginning of this episode is probably going to be really jarring for fans of the book or the previous miniseries because it, it, it brings us in, um, in Boulder, like it, with a pretty iconic scene from the book in which uh, Harold Lauder, uh, here played by Owen Teague, uh, from who played Patrick Hockstetter in the It movies, but he's been in a ton of things. And um, and uh, he's cleaning up a church in Boulder of filled with dead bodies who were who all died mid-prayer um, Co- in the church. Cordwood. <laughs> Cordwood. Cordwood, yeah. Um, 
Uh, although I will say there is less uh, random dead bodies like in restaurants and stuff uh, mm-hmm. than there in the 94 one, which I appreciate because I always had an issue with that. A guy's dying while playing ping pong. Um, I just don't <laughs> buy it. Well, so, I, I like uh, to say something about that. I think at, <laughs> at the underground bunker in the miniseries, the gas hit like or the, the virus hit right away and people were dying immediately. So yeah, people would have been like people would have been mid. It wasn't like you got sick and people were dying immediately. So yeah. that, I, I bought that. I was fine with that. If you're going to die anyways, you might as well finish the point. Right? Exactly. <laughs> they're probably like, oh, it was okay, serve. And right. then the, the, the virus hit the room and then, and then yeah. they were dead. It, then they it weren't was, up by more than two. So, you know, you can't quit. I always just took it as like kind of the same thing in like Dawn of the Dead when the guy goes and gets his like heart <laughs> thing oh, checked. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It, like it, it was like they were trying to do a bit. Mid yeah. 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 Um, yeah, so so we start, you know, in the middle of the story. I mean, uh, in the book, in the miniseries, you don't get to Boulder until halfway through. Um, but here we start there, and our kind of our focal point for this episode is not Stu Redman, although he is a pivotal part of it, but Harold Lauder, which is, um, you know, in the book and the series, uh, the previous series, Harold doesn't show up till pretty deep into the story, and he is, uh, you know, nobody I think would call him the main character, but I think it's a pretty bold swing right out the bat to not only introduce us to the story in the middle of it and then uh, utilize flashbacks to take us back to sort of how they ended up at this point, but also to use a character who is, you know, best classified as an incel, um, kind of, um, you know, kids joke about how his school shooting manifesto at one point, like this is a pretty disturbed kid and he's sort of our gateway into the story. Um, I guess... uh, I guess let's start off by how was that for you guys as viewers to... um, how did you wrap your brains around this time, this structure, this time shift, and also uh, Harold sort of leading the charge here? Well, I mean, it should be noted that uh, this is just a side note, but, um, you know, a few years ago when we were talking about the stand and Randall was going all in on Harold Lauder, um, we did receive an email from Jay Boone, uh, 1919 at uh, at Um who asked, like, look, I just want your feedback on how I'm going to adapt the Stan. Um, what do you think? <laughs> and Randall sent, sent back, like, a photo of Philip Seymour Hoffman from, like, uh, early 90s and said, give me Harold. So, look, you got your wish, Randall. Uh, you know, you just be totally I soaked. Uh, no, no, I never that thought happened. that I'm email just... would result in this, yeah. but uh, here we are now. Yeah. So, But yeah. this is your dream because, you know, it's Harold is your one of your favorite characters of all time, you know, in, in the Stephen King lore, at least. So it's I'm, 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 I'm very interested to see what, how you feel about the, the, the Harold, because like this, if there was anyone that's in the world that this <laughs> caters to. It is literally you. Because it's true. It's all your. I mean, you've always. It's the Bowers Power Hour. It's <laughs> it's it's hawking with Harold. Um, hawking with Harold. Um, yeah, I have a lot of thoughts on it, but first, I want to hear from Justo. It's it's funny because all four of us are so familiar with this book mm-hmm. and with the miniseries at this point. So what I started to do about halfway through is try to look at it through the eyes of somebody who was not familiar with the book. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and somebody who was not familiar with that miniseries and see how it works. And I was surprised, actually. I was I, I, when I heard that there were going to be flashbacks, and that's how they were going to do at least the first episode. I was definitely very wary about kind of just oh, here's hell, as opposed mm-hmm. to let's see how they get to hell. Mm-hmm. You know, the kind of structuring it that way. Um, and I think it worked for me. Yeah. And I actually appreciated the 180 as a as somebody who is familiar with the story of having Harold at the forefront. I was very very surprised by that. Of all the characters. Think about it. Wouldn't you have thought, okay, if they weren't going to do Stu at first, right, you would have named probably five other people that they would have mm-hmm. led with. 
Yeah. You could have led with Nick. You could have led with Larry. You could have led with Franny, which they kind of do. This is kind of a three for episode anyway. It is. Yeah. 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 But I was, I, I was on board with it, and I think that I was also on the record as being very hesitant about some of the casting because of the. Uh, Let's, let's be honest, the attractiveness of most of the people that are involved in this cast playing, you know, the nerds. But Owen Teague, he sells it. I think he does a really good job as Harold, actually. Yeah. And, I, and Randall, I know you're a huge fan of Corey Nemec. But <laughs> I do think that this is a... Uh, this even feels like a more uh, faithful Harold than, yeah. than Nemec's. You know? I think so, yeah. Jen, what do you think? How was the, the time jump for you? Um, the time jump at first, I said that I got kind of emotional when I pushed play and it was a bizarre experience for that scene to be the first thing that I saw. So mm-hmm. I was like, Oh, it's the body. Cause I was, ex- that was probably one of the last ones I was expecting to be, to lead it off. I have some thoughts about the time jump mainly just because I think they're skipping like, like if I were a viewer that didn't know the book at all, I would think that Franny is pregnant with Stu's baby Mm. and because of what happens at the end. And I just think it's weird. Like, I don't know. It might just be hard for me to separate everything I know because as I'm watching it, I'm like, Oh, it's Campion. But I was thinking, do they connect that person at the end with the person in the car? Like does somebody who doesn't know this material so well, Mm. are they going to make those connections? You know? But That's a good I, point because, like you said, I think Franny alludes to wanting to tell her father something at the beginning mm-hmm. of the episode. She does, right? yeah. But it's yeah. a good point, Jen, because we are so familiar with, with what she wants to tell him as, exactly. as people who are experienced with this. Yeah. But, like you said, are, are, is the common or the, the non-kingophile going to be understanding yeah. what's happening at the end of the episode? Yeah. Right. And, you know, but uh, – Owen Teague, man, I love that they're focusing on Harold because I think, and I talked about this, I think, on one of the miniseries episodes, but, like, I grew up reading this book and just loving Franny and Stu, and then as reading it as an adult, it's like those characters are not really that interesting. Mm -hmm. Like, I love them, but they don't really have a big arc compared to Harold. Like, Harold and Larry were the ones that I kept being drawn to just because they're so much more interesting, I think. And I yeah. love... I, Owen Teague is killing it. Like, if I look at my notes, it's like, oh, he's such a little twerp. Oh, he's terrifying. Oh, look at those shoes. Like, it's just all over the place <laughs> in a way that I think, like, is really selling the complexity of that character, you know? Yeah. And, I mean, I love Corin Nimick. I had a big crush on Parker Lewis. Hey, supernatural, <laughs> Corin Oh, my gosh. I kept texting you, asking him when he's coming back, and he never yeah. did. Um, Whoa. But That's my I- Parker Lewis. <laughs> Remember that? Remember that? Oh, I oh, do. Yeah. But so there was always part of me that looked at him like, oh, Harold's dreamy, like with those fake zits. But but Owen Teague is scary here. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I agree. I, I actually think sort of using that as our way in using that character as a way in actually illuminates some of the themes that Mm -hmm. I think are pretty integral to the story in general, which is um, because I think leading with Harold, what's so striking about him and why using him and Franny as sort of the entrance into this world, at least in the, like, the pandemic is happening, or yeah, well, uh, like <laughs> Captain Trips is happening, and everybody's dying, and they both have completely different reactions to it, and they mm-hmm. very much draw, like they draw that 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 um, stark line between how people would react and uh, sort of the different, um, you know, reactions that you would have to everybody around you dying. Uh, Franny is 
you know, her, we see her bury her dad in this episode. We see all of her friends are dying in this episode and she is devastated. And it culminates in a scene where she tries to commit suicide, which is not in the book and yeah. also not in the uh, 94 miniseries. And I found that to be a really interesting scene. I want to talk yeah. more about it later, but, mm. uh, but, you know, she is devastated by this and completely, um, you know, as I think a lot of people would be like, why am I the one who is alive? I just buried my dad. Like as much as the book really ill illustrates how painful that's like one of a really strong scene in the book is is franny like the logistics of having to bury her own father Mm -hmm. um but still we don't i one thing one criticism i have is we don't often see the psychological impact on these characters of everyone around them dying and all the people that were close to them in their lives being gone and we especially don't see that in mick garris's series like everyone just is kind of like okay everyone's dead we don't see a lot of mourning for people whereas here we get franny obviously who is losing it and then harold who i think it's actually really striking and like you could say that this is maybe um uh, an absence of story that we need but we never see like harold's family die at all and we don't mm-hmm. see him react to really their deaths um we don't and... even meet him until everybody's dead yeah well who harold yeah, in the book. Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, you're talking. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, in the book, we meet. We don't meet him until, I believe, yeah, we don't meet him until everybody's dead. And uh, But here we we meet him, and we see actually him uh, inter- engage with Amy, his sister, and we see him engage with his mom, who's already sick, and they're already sick, and he's like, and he's just kind of like annoyed, you know? And then after they're all dead, we he, ne- he doesn't shed a single tear. He is so excited to find out that Franny is still alive. Like, this to him is the greatest opportunity. And it illuminates this whole theme of, like, everything is a... To, actually, this is a line that Mother Abigail says later in the series, but everything's a blank page now, you know? And uh, everything needs to be rewritten now. So everyone is getting, in a weird way, like a clean slate. For Franny, that's horrifying because she was happy with her life. For Harold, that's the greatest thing ever because he hated his life. So that, to me, is like a really strong way into the story. And then um, it's rounded out in this episode by Stu, who sort of becomes our portal into understanding um, the actual uh, plague that's taking over the world. Because we enter with him, not in Arnett, although we do flash back to Campion crashing into the gas station. Uh, But we basically start with him, also mid-story, which is him in the uh, CDC facility and um, being quarantined and all of that stuff. So Yeah, I I actually don't mind uh, the, the narrative structure, per se, um, you know, which I pretty much liken to, you know, Carlton Cuse and uh, Damon Lindelof's loss structure, where, you know, it has the, the, the present and then you do the flashbacks and whatnot. We're going to obviously be talking about the structure and format uh, of these episodes religiously as this continues. Um, wow. what a, what a, It took three years or almost four years, but the structure and format section of our uh, <laughs> episodes actually have a, you know, have a meaning. Um, but um yeah, I, I mean, for me, it's it's a. I think this is the well-greased machine in this first episode. Having seen the six episodes now, I can see that there are definitely pitfalls to this structure and format ah, because what happens, teaser. yeah, because what happens is that there is a, a lot of assumption on behalf of the viewer, and I think a lot of that comes to the fact that you're dealing with two people that are running the show who have a very strong commitment and conviction to Stephen King. And sometimes I think that what happens with that is that you forget how much of the connective tissue you really do need that you just kind of take for consideration or you take for granted sometimes. I mean, like 
Um, and, and a lot of that affects the narrative in ways that you just don't even think until it's all actually parsed out and spread out. And I'm talking about like things like tension, um, things like, uh, you know, the world building, um, the, the tone, it's stuff that like on context paper, regarding characters. Too. Yeah. And like, you know, and, and, and you could see it on paper where you're like, okay, well we've connected these dots. But there are other dots beyond those dots that really add to so much more collectively that it, I think this structure and format does a disservice to in the long run. And I'm, in, I'm interested to talk about it from episode to episode. However, I will say this is just a, a really this is like a ballet. It's a, the dance is very delicate and very splendid in this first episode. And I, I love how it's all weaved together. I mean, I, yeah. I really do. And I think that the the way that they even, you know, use exposition, like you were saying with through Stu to figure out what's going on with the pandemic. Is and even natural. the radio reports we hear yeah. the president talk and stuff. Yeah. Justin, yeah. what were you gonna say? I was gonna say this kind of goes all the way back to well, to bounce off what Mike has been saying and then to go back to what Jim was saying about the pregnancy reveal. Do you think it might be a bit of a hindrance possibly to the overall story and the way it's been fleshed out if you do have somebody who is too slavishly dedicated to Stephen King and is too familiar with the subject matter <laughs> and who will make assumptions of, oh, well, people will remember this. But as a, as a filmmaker, as a showrunner, shouldn't you be cognizant of trying to make sure that if you've never read the book yes. or never seen a miniseries that – Everybody gets the, the the most rich characters that they can yeah. possibly get, mm-hmm. as opposed to just being like, okay, well, there's Larry. Oh, that's a good version of Larry. Like, you know what I mean? Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. I feel like that should be something that's that's important. And again, I haven't seen. I'm, I'm five episodes behind you guys. But <laughs> well, yeah, this, I'm trying. Maybe this I'm trying happen, to but. very much. I'm trying to very much just look at just this episode on its own because, and yeah. I will say, just I, I've watched all six episodes twice now, and I will say. The second watch for me was actually really illuminating, and I I think I enjoyed the things I struggled with timeline wise. I think I liked more on the second watch because I was more attuned to the ways that they were setting them up. The tough thing though is that you're right, Justin, in that there I do feel like the creators, like Owen King's in the in the writing room as yeah, well. Like these are people yeah. who are intimately. I almost wish I I wonder, and I might I'm interviewing uh, Ben Cavell tomorrow. I might ask him this, but it's like if they had any non-Stan fans. Like people who hadn't read the book, like in the writers' room. I, I should almost... say also. I just realized this. Ben Cavell is really the showrunner. Yeah, yeah, he really, he's yeah. the showrunner. He's, it's yeah, not yeah. really Josh Boone. It's, it's it is right. Ben Cavell mo- day to day. Yeah, and uh, and so, but it's interesting to me because I I do feel at times that like I like again I'm intimately familiar with the stand, and uh, it took me a second watch of some of these episodes to. Uh, to see all the connective tissue and the ways that they're trying to like tease out the larger um, story via the flashbacks. But the way I see mm-hmm. it in general is basically like uh, the stand is this big giant puzzle. And um, what they've done with this series is like take a hammer and smash it. And they're building it in a completely different way. Uh, yeah. And the thing is, that's a really smart idea that is really exciting. And it breathes new life into the telling of this story. I personally like, I appreciate the bold move, the boldness of it. Uh, because I feel like I'm seeing new as a fan of it. I feel like I'm seeing new uh, shades of the story by virtue of this telling. And, uh, and I also see the potential of doing it because it also allows, as it goes on, it allows the structure also allows 
um, the first part of the story, which a lot of people consider is the best part, like the kind of Captain Trips coming, the people like being in, like watching the characters find each other on the road, all of those things. Like once that's like a lot of people will say the first half of the stand is better than the second half of the stand, and um, this way they're able to tease out that first part throughout the whole series and allow uh, this whole sense of like. Uh, discovery to continue to happen throughout and the context of these relationships to take on new forms. The problem though is that uh, all the puzzle pieces don't when you take a hammer to them, they don't uh, connect as smoothly as they did if you just did it straightforward. So it's a mm-hmm. big swing, but once you start, once you've done that and you've like pulled that thread, it it starts to get really chaotic. Yes. And there's so, because there's so many different threads everywhere that once you do this framing device, it becomes really, really tough to uh, make sure that, like, all the context is being provided at all times. And certain characters are, like, introduced at times, um, even in this episode, uh, where... Because, like, Mother Abigail, like, if you don't know the general idea of her, that's a really jarring presence in this first episode. Mm-hmm. And because it's so brief, you know? And uh, and with Flag, too, and with Campion, because the Campion thing, again, like you said, Jen, are people always going to make that connection between the car, the pumps that, that smashes into an Arnett and the guy who's leaving at the end of the episode? It is. Mm-hmm. It is something that maybe seems to fans of the book and everything as like second nature. Of course people will get that, but I just wonder, will they? Because there, it, it, it does feel threadbare at times, but what were you going to say, Mike? Well, yeah. And I agree. And I, I think that the, the, I actually thought the last bit with camping was a little too fan servicey because I didn't think it was necessary. I actually thought that it, it, the ending of this episode is really in the last monologue at the end with, with, uh, um, Starkey. You know, with Harold and Starkey. And, no, no, not even Starkey. We just when with you go Harold, back with Harold. Yeah. Oh, and I, I think it ends there because you don't really I need to see that, the camp. Yeah. You've already committed to the idea that you don't need to see this in, in this opening. So I get that it's kind of like an introduction to, to see Flag and the fact that he held the door and yada, yada, yada. But like, it just felt unnecessary to me. But to, to your point about the things becoming chaotic, I almost liken it to like, you have a like a really well-defined uh, Thanksgiving dinner, right? You know, the allotment for all the turkey, for all the mashed potatoes, for everything you have. You have all the plates ready and all set. You know what guests are going to come in. And then all of a sudden, you the back door knocks and you have six other six other people that are like there. And you're like, hey. And you go, oh, yeah, duh. We forgot. We invited six other people. And then that all of a sudden your dining room table you have to kind of you know shift it around and be like all right well maybe we'll 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 we'll, we'll parse this out well this will instead of having this much turkey we'll have everyone will have this much turkey there and you can kind of see that sort of recalibration happening and it's it's a, it's a, it's almost as if they didn't realize just how much is in this book um and it's yeah. a lot it's a lot and that's and that's in the the thing that the thing that that the thing that bothers me most about the structure and format is it doesn't allow it doesn't afford a lot of time to really have those type of moments that make you remember why you love whatever show you're watching you know i i just finished my fifth <laughs> rewatch of breaking bad Jesus and some of my Christ. favorite some of my like <laughs> Some of my favorite moments of that of that show are in those gaps of silence, like you know Jesse standing outside having a cigarette and just staring off into oblivion for a good five ten seconds before Walt shows up. 
those are important moments and those are important scenes and those are important little bits of connective tissue that add to the lived in feeling of the world that add to the, the the spiritual essence of characters and when you have a this many characters and then b this little time on a long enough timeline you're going to start going like who am i here <laughs> <laughs> who are these people like to bring it back to lost <laughs> yeah yeah exactly right yeah yeah so I, anyway. I do oh you go justin yeah i actually i did like the ending though mm-hmm. with the campion i, I mean I know, I know it's probably maybe may possibly confusing for first-time watchers but for, for me i just kept thinking about you know the end is the beginning yeah mm-hmm. so i kind of liked that little yeah tie at the very end although i, I listen i don't know if there's a place to go into it but i know we're trying to separate ourselves as much as possible but I'll tell you right now, if these episodes all ended with Don't Fear the Reaper, <laughs> come on, how much, how great would that be? I kept waiting for it yeah. to kick in. I kept waiting for the song to kick in, but it never mm-hmm. did. Or Something I want to say, though, about the overall uh, structure of the show and the amount of time we're spending with people, like you said, with Jesse and whatnot. He, the, the bottom line is, is that there are a lot of boring sections in the stand book. Yeah. And I do fear that we would get like a season four of like ad hoc committee meetings. <laughs> just a lot of like, okay, it, just a lot I of like, because we've seen shows like this. Yeah. And oh like, yeah. The Americans yeah. with like season five. That's exactly five. what I was going to say. Yeah. Season five. I feel like yeah. we get, we get these shows that are contractual. People are contractually obligated to do six seasons, but they find out in season four and they're like, wait, we only have 10 more episodes yeah. of story. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if you could make 50 hours of the stand. I don't know if you could do five. I mean, you know, you could maybe do three seasons. I could give it three. Yeah, I mean, you got three books, three scenes, uh, seasons. Yeah, I mean, it's just yeah. a little bit more. I, I, I just, I just can't believe that twenty five years later, you know, we're still, we're basically just still playing in the same format that we did in the nineties. Like, it just doesn't make that for Wait, me. It what just do you mean by that? Well, it's, it is. It's the it's a it's a miniseries. You know, it's the limited miniseries, like the one off miniseries. Like, oh, sure, sure. You know, like, and it's only three hours, and then one of them is dedicated to a coda that isn't even part of the book. Well, like, well, you know. the whole ep- I you yeah. texted me about this. The whole episode isn't the coda. Yeah. It's, it's like there's it's, just a new No, no, no. If you look at the ending. listing, if, I mean, if you look at the listing, it's Yeah, but I'm sure it's, it's still like the story as we know it. It's not like the entire final episode is brand new from King's perspective. I do have a question about that, and if anybody knows, please jump in. So yeah, do you think it's going to be the last episode will be everything Post, um, do we do we want to spoil it to the well, stand? It's, it's, can, we spoil, well, can we spoil the stand here? <laughs> I mean, you can't. I mean, post Vegas is your basically. Yes. How about that? How about? Mm-hmm. I think so, it is. I mean, it's literally or, called. Or is it going to be like a new version of the epilogue from the book? Oh, I don't think it's that. It, it's so that's the question. Like according the to Wikipedia. Kind of well, okay, according you know, to Wikipedia, they kind of have like life going on, but people are kind of starting to become quote unquote evil again, and people are leaving Boulder in the book. Is that what they're going to do as the coda or the well, epilogue based, of the last episode? Or the title is called Coda Franny and the Well. Oh, oh. interesting. Well, I'll say yeah. I'll say this: like, is it I really think... called Coda? Yeah, no, it's, it has on been with there the, with these with these people using Coda again. I know like the Godfather well, Coda. Yeah. Francis Ford Coppola <laughs> was involved, coda. and uh, he's like, Stephen, let's cut this together. Um, the Stan I, Coda, the death of Randall Flag. Yeah. I don't want to speculate too much on this, but I think a lot of it depends. I think the shape of that final episode, in a lot of ways, will depend on. Um, uh, the way that this show explores government, um, like mm. and ideas of authoritarianism versus democracy, uh, like the book does. Uh, and the thing is, there, I'm, 
I'm seeing different shades of that in the series as it goes on. I don't mm. want to dig in too deep because we're going to talk about it later. But I'm curious what the code is going to look like because I know it is new in some ways. And I'm curious if it what it reflects from King's perspective. Um, you had a after <laughs> after I have a theory, but I'm not going to get into it now. Uh, like 30 years, you know, or what? 40, 50. How long? When did he write this? The 70s. Like 70s? since like what, obviously King is no. King has lived a lot of life since then. So I'm curious, like how his perspective on that ending has changed. So that'll yeah. be interesting. But, uh, but yeah, it's like, I, I'm, th- that's the thing is that you do get overwhelmed by story. There's so much story here, but the thing is like this episode by itself and, and we're not doom saying the rest of the series or anything. It's like, it's just that this, this effort, it works so well in this episode. Yeah. It is a it really fine. hundred percent agree. Episode. Yeah. You can tell that they, this is a pilot episode that has probably been really worked and tweaked yep. and fussed over in a good way. Um, because I do feel like all the pieces connect. Mm-hmm. Uh, and especially rewatching the episode, I was struck by all the different ways that um, that they were taking pains to illustrate the, the Captain Trips and the breadth of it. Because if I do have one complaint uh, in this episode and in the series, it's not... And this is something that I think the 94 series did did better was to illustrate the breadth of the carnage, like yes. the amount yeah. of death. Like I always make fun of all the dead bodies like dying in mid meal or whatever. But like it's it's to me uh, that at least was indicative of how barren that there's just dead bodies everywhere, that everybody is dead and everything is gone. That to me is not conveyed as well here. And I think part of that is that we don't see like Arnett, right? Like we don't see like Arnett to me is a really integral part of the story. Uh, and you know and like that's the thing too and I want to ask you guys if there are if there are storylines from the threads that we explored here that you're like why isn't that here uh, that was necessary and for me it's Arnett because yeah. I think seeing this small town all the military come in uh, start rounding people up uh, the fear people you know like worrying about their businesses their jobs like all that kind of stuff and then this the terror of being pulled in by the government and quarantined in that way watching the various people we met die like there and then like Stu's kind of whole journey in our net going to the the like at, you know it's it's Stovington and in um in uh, the book, but here I believe it's, well, he's in a Texas facility, and then they moved to Atlanta, I think. Or maybe it is Stovington, I can't remember. Either way, uh, we, we're so locked in, like, the hermetically sealed rooms with Stu, that I don't feel like we see the full breadth of the carnage that's happening. And that's, so that's a complaint I have, and I do think if, if we had seen the full arc of Arnett, then maybe we would have seen that, like, or experienced that a little bit more. Uh, what are you going to say, Justin? I would say, well, because of the structure of the show, at least, again, I've only seen the first episode, it's not as apparent to me that they're going to leave things out because I just I just assumed that it was possible that they would go back to Arnett in some future episode mm-hmm. because they mm-hmm. are dealing in flashbacks, but apparently they don't, so I guess I can move on from that. I mean, that's the thing is, like, <laughs> is like there are some really, not, yeah. there are some really, really integral storylines that I feel like... Um, like, you know, per- personally, I would have much rather seen more of Arnett than had the whole J.K. Simmons scene, which to mm-hmm. me really does not work. What did you guys... So basically, when Stu is leaving the CDC, I guess we'll just unpack the plot really quick. He's there um, 
with this doc, Dr. Ellis, who's kind of his pal, played by Hamish Linklater, uh, oh. who's very, very good in this episode. I will yeah. say this for the stand. Some of the supporting performances throughout are, like, really good. Like, yeah, like shockingly good. Um, so the guy far. who plays Teddy, I, I'm going to talk more about it in, in <laughs> Mars and Scars, which is your little tease for the next section. But, uh, but so basically... Um, uh, things start collapsing. Everyone inside uh, the the CDC center is getting sick, and then we have this. Uh, they're they're sort of a half hearted attempt to do the elder storyline from the book with the kind of enforcer who tries to kill Stu uh, through this character Cobb, who is played by Daniel Signato from um, from Rescue, Rescue Me. Me. And uh, <laughs> the Dark Knight and, Rises, yes, yeah, Dark Knight Rises. I, I, he plays then, the same character in every fucking. Day. And then he uh, basically. You know, gets killed by like he kills the doctor, and then Stu kills him, and then Stu's escaping, and he finds General Starkey, played by the great Ed Harris in 1994, uh, here played by J.K. Simmons in a surprise sort of cameo, like he was not announced as being part of it. So mm-hmm. I remember being genuinely surprised when he oh, popped I, up. But on I have screen. to say this before I forget: I was yeah. I watched this with Mac, and he called it before you see J.K. Simmons' face. He heard the voice. It was yeah. I just I could not place it, but he said J.K. Simmons. I'll give him. Credit. I actually I actually thought it was going to be um my I have mentioned Breaking Bad before, but I actually thought uh it was going to be Brian Cranston because and and someone a lot of people were watching it on the virtual feed when we were doing the the premiere, people were saying Cranston, and then I was thinking, wait, was the voice I was hearing supposed to be the president, and maybe they did get Brian Cranston to do a cameo voice for that? I I, I don't know, but I, I was I was shocked that it was Simmons too because um. Mm. It was definitely yeah, there. and like, but like that that scene to me didn't do much. Whereas like, like it was it was neat to see him, and but it ended up being kind of corny with him shooting himself in the chest and Stu saluting him and everything. I'm like, what is going on here? Like, yeah, it's it's just unnecessary. And well, the fact that he like literally is just like, so I think that's I like yeah, that's like something that was frustrating in this episode, and also I think in general is there are certain scenes that they show. Because, like, the way I see it, it's like it's like you're trying to fit 10 pounds of story in a five-pound bag with yeah. with doing this. which is, And so sometimes they'll do a scene, and I'm like, why did you do that one and not this other one? You know what I mean? And that, mm-hmm. I think, is is the frustration of watching The Stand as a constant reader. Because you were like, mm. I needed that scene. Um, right. And I think that for I think that's going to be an ongoing thing. Like, almost that could probably be its own section. But I guess I am curious, <laughs> is there anything here that you guys wished you saw? And the thing is... Do know, like, just because I spoiled the Arnett thing, uh, uh, unbearable. I can't believe you did that. I can't. How this, am I supposed to watch the rest of this? Some of some of the stuff that maybe you missed will show up later. Uh, yeah, but what so. did you wish um, that you saw here that perhaps you didn't get, Jen? This is wish fulfillment for me, but I really, really wanted the scene with Franny in the parlor and her mother, mm. and that's the scene that, like, I will argue makes the the expanded version of the stand worth it to me like I just love that I love how much depth it adds to her character and I think when I think about my overall problem with the structure because I loved this first episode but I just wanted more room and I imagined like it felt like watching the first two episodes of The Outsider where Mm -hmm. I was like what the fuck they're halfway through the book already like it just (laughs) it was flying by and I was like what it it felt it's weird because I feel like it's going to be confusing to people who haven't read the book and almost like whiplash (laughs) um, for people who have. Um, but I, the thing I think I was really missing was like the menace and the fear of Stu being at the CDC. Like it, Mm -hmm. it seemed like pretty easy for him to get out. And that's like a huge part of the book. And it made me really nervous for the Lincoln tunnel part. Mm. Jen, that's, that's probably my one major flaw of the episode is that I, I wonder if they were like, 
if deep down they just thought, look, I know the 94 version is dated and flawed in some ways, but that Escape from Stovington is one of the best parts of the entire miniseries. Yeah, it's and excellent. I feel like they didn't even try. Yeah. yeah. Because they just have it intercut with, they have, it, they have him leaving. He literally just says, follow the lights or something like that. Or I, I guess that's to lead him to Starkey, but they have it intercut with Starkey's um, recitation of uh, The Second Coming Yep. Yeah. by uh, Yeats. Yeah. And, and I think it's, if I could go back and write all of this, what I would do to argue for making it longer is I wanted this to be three episodes. I wanted an episode on Harold. I wanted an episode on Franny and I want an episode on Stu, kind of the way that Lost does. And I think you can still interweave everything together, but just give us more room to kind of explore that. And the structure works for me. Because, like, kind of the reverse of what Randall was saying, like, my favorite part is the middle when they're all in Boulder. Mm -hmm. So if, because, like, the cast is all together, and now you have the opportunity to do that in every single episode and really kind of reinforce them working together, then cutting back and forth. And I just, I wanted more. And also, like, when we were talking about the monologue, I couldn't remember which one it is because I feel like there are two or three. And so, like, space (laughs) that out. You've got, like, all these poignant moments coming back to back that could have been their own episode, you know? That's been a re- recurring theme. I feel like this year especially. And Randall, and I, Randall, and I think are the only people that I know that watched Fargo season four. <laughs> I love but Fargo season. I know, four. yeah, Jen. That's right. You love. We talked about that, Jen. That you loved we it. Did, I was like, yeah. I don't know. But I just feel like we're getting to the point now where these writers are just so they're basing plot around monologues. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And and I hope it does. Look again. I haven't seen the future episodes, but I hope it doesn't affect the rest of this series. But again, it's hard for me to say what I am missing because this is not a linear show. Yeah. So for me, yeah. I still feel like, well, maybe they will get to that five yeah. hours from now. Like it's hard until it's all done. Honestly, mm-hmm. for me to say, oh, I wish they had gone back to that. That's, yeah, that's I where guess, I am with it right now. I guess for me, it's like, I feel like certain, like Stu's escape would have hit a lot harder had I seen these other scenes first. And yeah. like, I think that's the trouble here is something that when you do break up this structure, then suddenly you're just like, you give us a scene and in your head, you're just like, I want, I needed to see this other scene first for it to really mm-hmm. hit. And uh, sometimes we do get that scene later and sometimes we don't. And, uh, but that's the thing is there's so much story that how do you even approach some of this stuff? And that, uh, that I think hits especially hard in episode three, which I'm really excited to discuss, but it's, um, but yeah, uh, let me think other things to discuss in this, um, in this section. Oh, there's a couple technical things in terms of like how it's, presented right That's, we're still talking about this yeah. yeah i think it's important when you think about if you want to compare it again to 94 is the fact that this is not only in widescreen but it's in like 235 scope mm-hmm. so this, this really does give it like a like an actual motion picture theater feel i feel yeah and uh we're getting some uh, naughty language <laughs> yeah fucking shit yeah, 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 man. This I if you if the CBS aspect of it, which I remember we balked at a lot in the early days, but the fact because I we were just like they're gonna do a network version of the stand like again like in 2020, you know, and it, then but yeah, by doing it via CBS All Access, they can say all the naughty words they want, and uh, let's just say there's a little bit of nudity, uh, a little bit uh, further down the road. So hubba hubba, something uh. to look forward to because there's a lot of hot people on this show. So um, <laughs> yes, there is. Yes, and so I, I, I didn't guess, know this. <laughs> Let me, I'm sorry. Do we have an hour for me to talk about this? Yeah, really. <laughs> but yeah, there is, Um, yeah, I do agree. There's a very cinematic quality to uh, the whole presentation of this, um, both in terms of 
like the breadth of certain shots and uh, some of the music choices, which I think Mike and I uh, might have some fun with in later episodes. So, um, well, you, is this a place to talk about some of the songs that are in the yeah, episode? Yeah, go or? for it. Yeah. Oh, wait, wait. How, let me see. Let me see our categories. It, well, yeah, I know it is. It is. It, we yeah, can do I it think there. this would be a good place to talk oh, about. Oh, I guess we could probably keep that more for Nightmares and Dreamscapes, I think. Yeah, sure, um, sure. If you want to. If, especially if it's something that you like or something you don't like. <laughs> yeah, um, we'll save it for that. Um, yeah, I mean, we... the, the, the cinematic quality is something I do think that is a, a muscle that they flex big time here and mm-hmm. i think it's one that's warranted as opposed to like the language thing my, my the thing that you know i curse non-stop i'm probably one of the most like you know vile people <laughs> we know uh, easily <laughs> and so i mean on here i curse left and right but like there comes a point where it just seems as if like there's that um it, it reminds me of like an old school uh when he's just like fuck shit damn cock ball and it's like oh yeah don't celebrate it or whatever and like that's kind of (laughs) how i feel like what they do with cbs all access shows sometimes like in the in the twilight zone i had to do weekly coverage um on here for the fifth dimension and every episode it just felt as if they're like well we got the we got the opportunity to so let's just throw in some fucks and like this this the this show is like the same way like everyone's just cursing in ways that like Sometimes it feels natural, and then sometimes it just feels like we gotta, you know, we gotta, we gotta be uh, mature or something like written that. Written there, yeah, um, yeah. I I, like it, well, I think it was so out of place in the Twilight Zone. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> like the Twilight Zone was never a family-friendly show necessarily, but it just felt so. Ugh, I, that's the least of my problems with the new Twilight Zone, but yeah, that's that's. Um, it. Yeah, so I think it's time. I think that we can move into our next section. Uh, to, to talk about the characters a little bit more. And we have already touched on some of it, but I think there's a lot more to unpack here, including the performances. Um, so let's move on to a little section we like to call Mars and Scars. I saw you leaving. You bored with the sermon? <laughs> no, no, just not really my thing. Hmm. Can I give you a piece of friendly advice? Sure. Now, it's one thing to come into town and think you're too good for the people who live here. I don't know why you'd say that. I, I wouldn't. But, but being too good for God, that's another thing entirely. Mars and Scars, a reference to two of this series' uh, big stars. <laughs> Both of them very attractive. James Marsden, yes. Alexander Skarsgård. Uh, oh, and- Jen, is that what you were going with? I didn't <laughs> think about the Mars. <laughs> I, I knew I, I, the Scars was obvious, but was the oh, Mars? Yeah. That was just me. Like I've been talking about how hot both of those are for months. Well, <laughs> well, if, if yeah. you think about it, it's so James Marsden's playing Stu Redman who's ostensibly a hero. And then Alexander Skarsgård is playing Randall Flagg, who, as we all know, is the villain of the Stephen King universe. <laughs> and we have a section that's heroes and villains. Ah, I mean, it's so. perfect. And they're both super hot. So, you know, win-win just, win for everyone. <laughs> I just had to break it down for the constant listeners who are like, what the fuck is this Mars and Scars shit? It's not uh, just yeah. indulging me being like hot for everyone in yeah, the show yeah. it works uh, like the young and the teague i, mean, you <laughs> ah, I like that nice. i like that um let's start with uh the hot one himself james marsden so thanks I for think... specifying because everybody in this fucking show is so attractive <laughs> i don't even know you could have said let's start with the hot one let's start with owen teague let's start with odessa young let's start Mike... with alexander Skarsgård. let's start with all the doctors who are extremely hot let's go they, they are i uh no it was funny mike was mike sent was sending me bits from his his consequence interview uh review and he like it's just so baked in the way we speak about him now but like yeah. you like you you talk about mars and you just call him hollywood hunk hollywood for no hunk. real reason <laughs> but like that to me is just very funny to me because it's like it's it, we, it's just so ingrained and like i was watching it with my wife too and uh 
and Jen was just kind of like, like he is like she just like was looking at Marsden. She's like he's just he's not real. Like he is he is chiseled from stone. You know. So. Well, like he's been in this he's been in this underground bunker for like three days. He's looking hot as hell. You know, it's just it's unbelievable. Like to be fair though, there was a joke made. Yeah. Where mm-hmm. they say, "Why aren't you wearing your mask?" Do you remember this? Yeah, I, yeah. I don't actually. And he says, and he says, "I'm too good looking." Oh, <laughs> I thought that was pretty funny. That was a is pretty good. Is that a joke wink. or is that just a fact? I know yeah. it could, it's both. Yeah. <laughs> so how do we? I think we we hemmed and hawed a lot. I think about Marsden not because he's not a good actor. There is something inherently likable about Marsden. I think we all enjoy him on screen, um, but like. Sometimes he's best utilized, uh, like in Westworld, I actually think he's really well utilized where he plays sort of a, a cowboy who doesn't really have a soul and is just sort of there because he exudes sort of the rugged masculinity and, and beauty. And uh, I don't think we turn to James Marsden for deep, soulful, Oscar-winning performances. Uh, whereas, you know, we had the great Gary Sinise in um, the 94 miniseries, who I think really elevated a character who can be a little bit flat on, this, on the page. Sinise mm. really brought like a real depth depth to him and I well I'll say that I actually quite and I I perfectly enjoy Marsden in this role but yeah it's kind of what we expected where he's a serviceable stew but I'm not sure that I'm uh I'm Gaga for Marsden here Gaga for mama (laughs) Gaga for mama uh yeah I I think he actually kind of brings him back to the page um, Perfect. Yeah, I think, I think what, exactly what I was going to say. You know, I think that's what the you were saying with like you know with Sinise elevating the character. It, it's exactly he kind of brings it back down, um, which isn't bad. You know, I, I I actually think that for the most part we've joking around about everyone being you know a hot cast, and which is true. But I do feel like this show does a pretty good job in dressing everyone down a little bit. Um, mm. You know, especially coming into. Uh, you know, we've only seen a little sliver of the the whole pie that is the Stan CBS All Access cast, um, and I, I think that for the most part, everyone does feel pretty real to me. Like they don't feel. It's not like I'm watching like, you know, on Halloweenies today, which which is a Sunday. We dropped the Friday Thirteenth Two Thousand Nine uh, remake Good episode, about and you, people. yeah, and they look they they, they they all look like they walked out of like a Hollister catalog. Like that's yeah. not the case here. I, I I would still I would argue that everyone looks pretty. They look dressed down. That's the best way I could say it. But um, yeah, uh, other thoughts on Marsden, uh, his performance here. Is there more to say? I think, well, I could talk for a long time about it. Um, Yeah, <laughs> I think for me, like, I think he's doing fine, but I don't think we've really had to see him interact, or at least I haven't seen him interact with anybody who really matters to the overall story, mm-hmm. you know? So I'm going to be interested to see how his relationship with Franny and Harold goes down because yeah. that's like, and, and when you're watching it, like Odessa Young and James Marsden, how, how many years apart are they? Like 20, 25, I think. Yeah. yeah. Which, and I mean, I know that's true to the book, but I'm not seeing it when I'm reading the book. And so, and I feel like Gary Sinise and Molly Ringwald looked a little more age appropriate, yeah. you know? So I'm interested to see how that is going to shake out. And if there's going to be kind of a little more, I don't want to say lecherous about stew, but it just, you yeah, know. I mean, she, I, already, I already kind of keeps creeping up on her and giving her back rubs and stuff like right. that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I mean like Molly Ringwald red is like mid twenties, you know, in yeah. this stand, yeah. whereas Odessa looks like a teenager, like honestly, um, which well, works for the character, but yeah. Mike. Yep. One, of, one of the big issues that I've, I've been seeing just in the sense of everything being condensed is something that kind of goes back to what, if you're a writer and you're going into college, one of the big things that any college professor is going to tell you is like show versus tell show versus tell. And 
I think back to when you first think back to like when you first meet Gary Sinise's still. What's the first thing he does? He tells, you know, he, he says, hey, flip the switch for the gas tanks. And he immediately runs the guy and cradles him. And that says so much about his character without having to say, like, good guy, good yeah. guy. Mm-hmm. Like, you see him. You see him act as a good guy. And you get a little glimpse of that with Stu here with Hamish Linklater's character. But it's not enough for me. Because, yeah. you know, you do feel for Hamish Linklater um, just because he's just his performance is great here. But I, I, there's still just not enough tissue there, like, you know, to maybe get enough from Stu. So I think that – and then even with, like, Stu talking to Starkey – it's almost as if like you're just playing a protagonist in a video game. Yeah. And you're like, you're walking, oh, there's this guy I have to get a key from. And then you walk up <laughs> no, and he's just yeah, like, there you go. <laughs> and he just like stands one. there listening and you're like reading the text, like, okay. I know, okay. I was like, I was like, he's gonna kill himself, he's just gonna stand there. Like, yeah. <laughs> hey, <laughs> it's the name like of the this. series. It's the name of the series. <laughs> Listen, I do have to I, I here's the thing. I, I I would have more issues with the way that Stu is portrayed in this. If he was presented as the lead, as he is in the miniseries yeah. and the book, the fact that he is kind of reverting back, I feel like I don't want to feel like I'm dismissing Marsden's performance. I'm not, but he is a little bit more Ben Mearsy, yes. as we yeah. put it in the book. And so it's not that egregious to me because he doesn't feel like he has to be carrying this or, yeah, because if that was the case, then it would be kind of like, I make this comparison all the time when you've got, what the fuck is uh, Chris uh, Pratt's name and, um, Oh, Owen Grady. Owen Grady. <laughs> when you compare like Owen Grady, this big muscle-bound guy, cocksure guy with guns who trains dinosaurs, <laughs> you're pretty confident that he's going to win the day as opposed to like some 40-year-old archaeologist whose biggest <laughs> hang-up is like, how, how do I handle kids? Yeah. And I, and I, yeah. I, like, mm. that's the thing. Well, wait, so how, how, would, how would Sam Neill say that? That's fine. You know what I mean? How would Sam Neill uh, say that line? I, I don't mess with kids. <laughs> um, I don't mess with them. How we get yeah. some? Uh, how we go kill some think, dinosaurs and have some beer? I think that's actually like a good way to put it. Is is Stu doesn't feel like the main character here, yeah. uh, which no. I really like because he looks like the main character, and mm. in many ways, it, it seems like he's positioned as that. But but I will say by by not showing us Arnett and using that as the way in, um, that's that sort of allows the ensemble to shine a little bit brighter. I think, uh, and I think another reason that they probably left with or led with Harold and. Franny was probably these are the two of the best performances in the whole series is Owen Teague and Odessa Young they're Mm -hmm. both very very good and they're very good right from the outset and um I think with some difficult material too and so um go Mike well we'll think about like the roots of Josh Boone right you know Fault in Our Stars he's Mm -hmm. got the, the the teen roots background big it feels natural that he would kind of you know you know, uh, gravitate towards Franny, the teenagers, and, and the teenagers. Yeah, um, and the loves the unfulfilled yeah. love story. Yeah, yeah, um, which I do like. And um, I oh, go Justin. There was something else. I know we're kind of jumping around, but it's hard with the first episode. It's the structure. Is I do feel though it is important, and they did a, they did a good job of this. Is in that first episode laying out the groundwork, and I mm-hmm. feel like if you had a more defined stew in our net for the most part, or something like that, how are we going to convey? to the audience what is happening around the world and that is why uh, the uh, what's the Hamish Linklater the Denninger character is it Denninger that Linklater is playing uh, he, he plays a, ca- a character named uh, like Ellis. a ca- composite okay so like yeah, a composite, composite character. character okay well we need okay. Stu to be the audience mm. yep. he, he needs to be the one that's actually listening mm-hmm. to other people telling him what's happening 
And I do think they actually did a good job of that. It didn't feel so exposition dumpy. Yeah, I agree. As with some that. other things that we've seen, you know. Yeah, hundred um, percent. And then as for Harold, uh, I think another. Yeah, and I, I mentioned this earlier, and I'm just going to elaborate a little bit, which is the whole concept of, of, you know, the world has ended, and suddenly I can be whoever I want. Like I have, like people don't know who I am, and I since there's only like however many thousand people that are left. Um, there's a good chance that I'm going to be a person of note, like in this new society, everyone is going to be because everyone needs to like do something and be something and take on an identity and take on a role in the new society. You can't just hide. And so I do, I think it's really smart that they use the whole section of like the kind of Hawk narrative, the idea that Harold is, is, is actually proving himself to be an industrious, smart, uh, a person who can contribute a lot to a community and uh and so he's drawn between um sort of the noble pragmatism of what he can offer but then the base desires that have always consumed him and that's like the ultimate drive between because i and i have a lot and we're going to talk more about it in future episodes but just just like in the book, the the division between Boulder and Vegas, what is good and what is bad, and what choice and how how much does free will factor into this? Those are all the main things that I've always struggled with with the stand, which is like, who is 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 God real in this world? Is Satan real in this world? Like, what are these concepts of good and evil? And you know, and we see a little bit of the Boulder Free Zone, and it does look a little bit like in the '94 one where I struggled because the 94 boulder is like so sweet and happy and everybody's wearing flannel and, and doing good things and hugging each other. And there's children. And then you go to Vegas and it's like uh snuffy Walden electric guitars and men, men in suits with Uzis, you know, and like, and it's such this complete darkness, but I'm thinking a lot as I watch these episodes about what is the real division, what is good and what is evil. And, and I think Harold represents, what is that? Oh, nice. Yeah. Oh, he's trying to play the song. Classic. <laughs> is, is it working? No. It, I can't hear it now. Yeah. Uh, oh, there it goes. I can hear it a little bit now. Uh, <laughs> Trash think, can goes to Vegas. Yeah. It's such a bad track. <laughs> but I think, like, uh, I think it's this general concept. I think it's epitomized by Harold here, which is, like, do you want to be part of a functioning society that wants to rebuild and that is based, by and large, on selflessness? Because, uh, and I, that's the thing, is you mentioned Stu holding Campy and running to him and holding him in his arms. We do see that scene here. It's just not as emphasized as it is, like, in the book and in mm-hmm. the miniseries. And I do think that's actually a smart way to put it because I've been looking for those cues, like, what defines the people who go to Vegas and what defines the people who go to Boulder? And and it's not just this vague concept of goodness. It's uh, it's this idea of selflessness. Because we see with Franny, too. I mean, the idea that mm-hmm. she buries her dad. You know, she doesn't just leave him, like, in his bed. She actually loves him that much as she wants to give him this proper burial and everything. That's a very noble act. Whereas Harold could not give a shit about his family. They're gone. And he just, he capitalizes. He op- This is an opportunity for him, you know, to re-envision himself. But then when he gets to Boulder, and this is all in the book, too, but just, like, he gets to Boulder and suddenly he's this functioning member and he's got friends like uh, the character Teddy Wyzak played by Eon Bailey who I think is excellent mm-hmm. uh he's in future episodes too and i think he's just he's like one of those guys he's like he's like hamish linklater small role really like warm interesting personality um like immediate presence yeah immediate presence just one of those actors yeah. who really pops on screen and like uh but 
but yeah, so you see him there and he's got friends and they call him Hawk. He saves this guy's life, you know, and all these other moments. And But then it's that monologue from the book where it's like, what Harold am I going to be? Like, I am presented yeah. with a choice right now. And, uh, and I do find that that is a central, um, you know, uh, theme coursing through, which is like, who do you want to be? And you have the ability to make that choice now. And, um, and again, we'll talk more about how that unfolds throughout, but I think it unfolds really well here where we basically see Harold choose the path of darkness at the end of this episode, despite the fact that he is, he is seen that he can be a noble selfless person, but he just does not want to be because he is so consumed by jealousy, hatred and revenge. And so, so I think that is captured so well in this episode and played really well by Owen Teague because he can do like, and this is elaborated more on, but we see sort of his, ability like that final scene when he sees uh Stu and Franny and she's pregnant and they're together and he does that happy smile like he's so excited to see he's like oh my god yeah the Tom Mm -hmm. Cruise like it's like that smile he does I love that bit and I think he plays that really well and then when he goes in his basement and starts writing he like screams you know and it's like you see that rage and then earlier you see him break like his laptop uh after he gets bullied by those kids like he's so consumed by those feelings and that's what he can't let go so it's it's very successful in using that character to illustrate these themes and set up like these are the choices that all these people have to make the tough thing is like ideally we'd see each character have the like make that choice in the same way that harold gets to but there's just not yeah. enough time for that mm-hmm. so. yeah that that lack of depth is is one of the more concerning attributes is the, the, the fact that like you can tell what characters you know boone and cavell really love and yep. which ones they what do they want to hinge this narrative on and you know, I, at first, because I've, I've watched the episodes a couple of times too, and at first I did attribute to like performance, right? Like, because like I mean, look, like you just said already, like Tegan Young are like just the MVPs of the series, I think, and especially this episode. And I just attribute it to the fact that like their performance is so great, but it's really not. It's it's it, it, I mean, it is, but it's also the fact that like they're given so much more uh, time and in in, in in conviction and in in concern with regards to like thematic tissue and with regards to like how they're building their character and yeah I, there 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 is a lot of that 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 i don't want we can't go well into it too juxtaposes much in the future episodes, it with but... Stu, right because Stu, we don't get all that exactly he, like yeah. he like like justin said he's there to listen mm-hmm. he is there as sort of a vessel for us to learn about captain trips and i and you know he'll be fleshed out more later but it's like it's like uh but that's the thing is is getting those opportunities like the material is really there for Mm -hmm. Harold and Franny like because there is a real concern with that narrative specifically and I can see why I just you know unpacked why so uh Jen did you have something yeah go for it well yeah I mean I feel like that's kind of supported by the book too because when I think of the characters like really deciding Harold is really the only one aside from maybe Nadine who decides you know it almost feels like everyone else is kind of destined and they Mm -hmm. might be tempted or like because I know Franny sees the dark man in her dreams, but she's it's never really a question of where where she's going to go. Yeah. And that's what I think is so fascinating with Harold and why I think his character is so interesting and what makes the book so relatable, like what you were talking about. Like, I would love to think that I would go to Boulder, but there's part of me that was like, maybe, <laughs> like, I, you know, maybe I would go to Vegas, you know. And I think Ogan Teague is just nailing that ambiguity. And, like, the thing 
one of my favorite parts of the book is his note that he signs as Hawk and I don't want to spoil, but, and I loved hearing that language in the, this episode, like I could have been someone in Boulder or so that just, it breaks my heart every time because it's like that. What if, you know, that, that yeah. if I just made the other decision. And I love the line where he says like, cause we see him in a dream uh, at the end, like the episode ends with uh flag showing him the stone, which represents yeah. sort of like, you know, mm. uh, you are, like, this is my appeal to you to be with me. And the thing that Harold's drawn to is, like, I can be a member of a society, a contributing member of society. He goes, but out west, I can be a prince. And it's yeah. that idea, I can be royalty. I can be worshipped. Like, I can yeah. be, you know, I can be on that level. And I think that's also part of it, too, which is, like, and it relates to that idea of selflessness. Like, do you want to be a contributing member of society or do you want to fuck around and be worshipped by people, you know? And well, it's, and yeah. Go ahead. To, no, like, you go ahead. There's, like, a tie to what's going on in the world right now like you have to let go of pain and hurt and like injustice to move forward and I feel like he is just so unwilling to do that and that's what makes him so fascinating yeah you well know? and then it also gets into the idea that like he thinks that what he's doing is good which is something yeah. that's really hard to portray on screen you know like the th that's why the concept of the insult character is 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 rarely like perfectly um portrayed on screen because there's so much complexity with it because you really have to understand the agency that they think they have over the situation and what their agency what they've the motions they tie to that agency like for example like you know he goes and saves franny that's something that he believes is something that's going to, you know, that would probably set him on the destined path for Boulder. But as we see, it's a, it's a, it's such a selfish thing that he only uses to kind of contribute, you know, to 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 kind of keep his will yeah. over over something. And like this episode, surprisingly, like given the time and everything, like really does a good job in showing those complexities. And then what's really cool about it, and this is kind of a good transition to Franny, is that while we're learning about uh, Harold, I think this show does a like this episode especially does a really good job in being able to kind of do the the, the reverse and build her character in ways that show that that kind of take on her his themes and then also build it like connect with the themes of her, where it's like she's pretty much you know accepted defeat, like she's lost everything she knows. She's tied with this person that she absolutely hates and disgusts. And there's this sort of, you know, arc with her is the, the idea that we're able to see her coming around to the sense that like, well, I guess I will still hold on to the hope that, yeah. that there is a reason to live, that there is this kind of uh, reason to keep going. And so I don't know. I think the dichotomy between the two characters is just really smartly aligned here. Um, and I think with what I love about Odessa Young is she's kind of similarly hitting on the same beats that Owen Teague does where she says so much with like her reactions, you know, um, like she doesn't out really have to say that she hates Harold. She, you see it on her face, yeah. you know? And like, and that's such a different 180 from what we got in like, especially even the miniseries where it's like, Oh, Harold, you know, yeah. like it, that's not the case. Like you literally just see her and like the way that she even like the way that her body movement is around her. Like there's just, there's a lot of nuance there. And I, and and I and I think that does kind of set the tone for what you're saying, Randall, with like yeah. the choice between you know the cross. Yeah. The what were you gonna say, Justin? I think that's a major point, uh, especially in terms of the difference between this and the miniseries, is that they do capture Franny as acting a little bit more frazzled, like you mentioned at the beginning of the episode, Randall. Like, how would we be? We would not be behaving so prim and polite if you know, 99% of the world was gone. Mm -hmm. We'd be freaked out. We, our minds would be just wandering all the time. She's just buried her father. And I love how she really snaps at Harold. 
mm-hmm. in this. It says like you were the weird kid. Yeah. That was always in his room. When I would go visit your sister. I never liked you. Mm-hmm. And I think it was, mm-hmm. I don't want to say, I think people use brave too much, but I'll just say it was a brave choice of the writers to not show that she's just some perfect mm-hmm. protagonist like we often get in these types of sh- shows, you know? Yeah, yeah. I agree. Um, how do we feel about the, the suicide attempt? Is that, um, cause like, uh, is making her beholden in to Harold in that way. Does, is that necessary for the arc? Does that work? How do you guys feel about that? Justin? I, I feel like that serves more the Harold character than it does Franny, mm. because I think what you're showing here is another attribute of a attribute, another <laughs> part of like the incel characteristic of, well, I saved your life. Mm-hmm. Why don't uh-huh. you love me? Yeah. You, you owe me. me. Yeah. You owe me. So yep. I don't know what it does for the Franny character. I don't know. Cause again, maybe they do elaborate a bit more on that in the next few episodes, but it does feel to me a little bit more of a plot device than, a, yeah. I don't know. Yeah. I gen- think I, I struggled with it. I kind of went back and forth on it uh, because, but the thing is at the same time, I feel like it's almost necessary. It's a, it's a necessary thing to show, which is that, if everyone you love dies and yeah. the one person that's left is, is the weird kid who <laughs> creeps you out, like, do you really want to keep living through all of this, you know? And yeah. I think that to yeah. me is, is, is almost a necessary perspective, which is that the psychological toll, the impact on the emotional impact on you. Um, Cause it's something I feel like we don't get a lot in the actual story. Um, even in the book is like, is what is this doing to people like mentally and do they want to keep living in all of this? Like even when yeah. King does all the little short stories in the book yeah, of all the people who that. like, yeah, who like it, it doesn't really explore that. It's usually just all these like depressing accidental deaths. <laughs> like I just, yeah. somebody, yeah. somebody yeah. runs to like, death. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Jen, did like you a have... chapter though? Yeah. Well, yeah. it's interesting Richard. because I mean, she, she's pregnant also. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, and I mm. think it's easy mm. to forget that, especially in this episode. And in the book, it talks about her not wanting to take the sleeping pills because she doesn't want to hurt the baby. And I was just thinking like, it's not that she's now got to figure out like where she's going to get food or where she's going to like, how she's going to wash her clothes. You know, she is about to have a baby in with no, no help from anyone. And I just, I, I, it, that scene shocked me, but I was like, oh, I, I really liked it because I think it just added depth to the character and like a reality. And I also loved how detailed the scene of her burying her father was as gross as it was like yeah, how heartbreaking that would be to just keep going through all of that. And I feel like Franny is one of my all time favorite characters in any book. Mm-hmm. And I've grown up kind of, I don't want to say idolizing her, but just like she's one of the first female characters aside from like Matilda that I remember really relating to. Yeah. And I feel like she's kind of gotten some shit in the last couple of years as not really doing much in the story. And I don't agree with that because I think like just one choosing to have a baby on your own is in itself a big decision. But I, I like that she's adding like grit to this character, yeah. you know, and Odessa Young is just she has my heart. Well, I will the upgrade, watch her right? anything. Yeah, um, for being honest, that's yeah. yeah. Oh yeah, as much as I love Molly Ringwald, like this is more. This is yeah. better. I, I think <laughs> more real. To, to give to give more credit to Fran though, I think her photographic memory when recounting all the ad hoc memory dialogue. Oh and, yeah, and I think that, I was always very impressed with with her note taking hey, skills. Yeah, <laughs> meeting notes. <laughs> yeah, I think that's I think that's all super interesting, and and it just reminds me a lot too of how well you know they're able to they sort of activate like again i i'm i'm not like 100% on board with with the suicide attempt but i do think it does like suit a lot of purposes but it's yeah. also propelled in some ways by when harold kind of 
he's he's the one who sort of takes away a lot of her hope but to him it's not like when he says to her he's like he's like nobody's coming nobody's gonna help us all the people in power are gone and it's their fault that we got here in the first place uh so you know it's like it's like he's basically saying you know we're never gonna return to normalcy and he's like that's great and she's like, that's horrible, you know? Mm-hmm. And I think, again, that's, like, just a super interesting um, uh, wrinkle that they were able to work in. And all that stuff's in the story as well. But I think, you know, too, it the stuff that Glenn discusses in the book, you know, all the stuff about um, we're rushing to turn on the electricity again. Do we really want to do that? Like, are we really going to just rebuild society as it was when it led us here? It, like, when Harold has those lines, it does make me think that, the this story this version of it wants to engage with those themes which to me is really really important to the overall story of the stand so um any other thoughts on because it's we really only get those three characters and a couple small uh, uh auxiliary characters in this one or is there anybody else that you guys want to discuss or elaborate upon well i just want to say i think you know uh, harold's a big fan of eraser head <laughs> yes, I did like his, his eraser. Head Naked poster. lunch, uh, yeah. and of course King Crimson, which we'll get into later on. <laughs> a little, awesome. little on the nose. <laughs> yeah. All right. Let's move on to our next section: nightmares and dreamscapes. If you think your dreams are disturbing, <laughs> imagine the nightmares of Stephen King. What are you, some sort of a horror movie guy? No, Clyde, I'm a literary guy. In Nightmares and Dreamscapes, we discuss the things we loved and the things we did not love, the nightmares and dreamscapes. Uh, I can start this one. One of my nightmares... uh, and just something that kind of almost annoyed me. And it, it comes straight from the scene I was just discussing. Uh, when they talk, when Harold talks about how it was all over the internet, the idea that the government had manufactured this virus and that, it, you know, all this stuff was happening. And I love that they engage with that. Like, what is the, you know, like, what is the role of the internet in this world since it takes place in modern times? And then Harold has the line, it was all over the internet before they shut it down. Can you really just <laughs> shut down the internet? And also, like, is it, it almost annoyed me because if you're going to set the stand in modern times, like, how are you not going to engage with, like, what the internet represents in this world? Because it is so important. And what, how does that impact this world? And, uh, and they kind of just brush away the idea of what, how the internet could be utilized um, uh, in this sense, like in this world, because he just, they just shut it down, which to me was just sort of a line where they're kind of like, we're not going to engage with that aspect of the world. Like we're going to allow this world to exist like it did in the, in the nineties, you know what I mean? So, mm-hmm. uh, what other, uh, maybe nightmares or dreamscapes, like things that you want to highlight is things you really loved or things you really hated. Do you want to highlight right now? Uh, Justo? I mean, I've talked about it a little bit throughout, I've been teasing it as it were, as we say uh. in the biz, but I likened some of the casting in this to um, James Brolin as PW at the end of Pee Wee's Big Adventure. <laughs> like, I mean, think about like the quote unquote physical nature of some of the, like we've got Daniel Sunjata. Yeah. Who's been, who's looked like he's 25 for 15 years. <laughs> he takes over from the guy who played Elaine's ex-boyfriend on the junior men episode of Seinfeld. <laughs> and the guy who plays sure. Bub from Day of the Dead. And yes. then we've got basically... The, the the devilishly handsome Hamish Linklater, <laughs> who's basically doing the Max Wright role, yeah. the dad from Alf. <laughs> like, Randall, reminding me of your um, 
your halt and catch fire was it hot geniuses oh hot geniuses that's uh, look that i love show, halt and yeah. catch fire but it was a very <laughs> apt description and i do think there's kind of been a little bit more of a res- i don't know if it's a resurgence or just a little more criticism of why we feel the need to just have to cast like the hottest people alive and now as as a producer if i was a producer i do get it yeah right because you do listen attractive people sell and sex sells i i get that but you know, I mean, come on! Like, does everybody have to be so unbelievably attractive in this? It's just—it's ridiculous. You even get Crycheck from X Files leading the the cleanup crew. I mean, everybody's just like, oh, this another hot guy from twenty years ago. I don't know. Everybody's very attractive. Um, Mike, what? It's a, a little bit of a problem. It's a little bit of an issue. What's a nightmare you have in this uh, episode? You know, it, this one is actually a really—I just think it's a solid app. But the one thing I did yeah. laugh at was um, I felt we kind of got a little uh, Francis Ford Coppola's Jack uh, in here with um, <laughs> Owen Teague and the bullies. Like, yeah. yes. Are we really yes. supposed to believe yes. that like the, yes. these bullies are really like p- like beating up Owen Teague? Like, the, yeah. the guy's like as tall as LeBron James. Like it's, it's just it's not going to – that's a, that's a little too uh, fiction. There was some forced me. perspective, I think, yeah. going on, like Gandalf and yes. Bilbo trying to make him look shorter. <laughs> It was just like it was just like this older guy that's being beat up by like these younger kids. It's like, what are you nuts? Like you couldn't get someone that just looks a little like more, you know, I don't know. Did that didn't, that, hulking, I didn't buy it. Some hulking bullies. Yeah. Um, uh, Jen, any nightmares for you throughout this episode? Yeah, and it's a very small one because I think the bigger problems I have, I still am really down with. But um, as during Starkey's speech. Um, James Marsden is escaping and he's passing all of these people that have died. Is it too much to ask that I get somebody's face in a bowl of soup? <laughs> really wanted that. I thought this, <laughs> I was like, I was we're going to get soup face. Yeah. yeah, but we didn't. So, Ugh. yeah, but that, that's really my only gripe. Yeah. Like, yeah. You know, aside been... from the bigger things, like, yeah. Right, right, right. Um, uh, well, you know what would have been really cool? <laughs> I, oh, well, I have, well, I have one thing on the science lab. <laughs> a little bit. Um, would it would have killed them to, like, you know, give a little nod to Harris by having, like, a poster for the abyss or something like that? Like, in the, <laughs> like or, just, we, or just something like, we miss you, Ed, scrawled yeah. on the wall. Mm, mm-hmm. Or like Milk um, Money. You know, somebody has a DVD copy milk of Milk Money. money or something. I watched well, that movie. That movie was on HBO all the time when I was a kid. Melanie yeah. Griffith. Oh, yeah. Uh, another, uh, another, here's me making another unfair comparison to the miniseries, but I got to tell you, the score of that miniseries really sets the scene. And mm-hmm. uh, I, I'm sure that they weren't overly concerned with, we have to make sure this has an amazing score, but... You know, no, that is that is something that's not very. At least I'm not sure if the future episodes gets gets a little bit more memorable, but uh, yeah, yeah, no, I'm missing something there. That's an issue, and that's actually something that Sammy brought up when we were watching. She's like, "Where's the tone?" You know, like, and that 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 is such a big tone of the miniseries. I mean, granted, we just made fun of the you know trash goes to Las Vegas scene, but (laughs) those are the exceptions. When when you're not in Vegas, when you're not in Vegas, it scores really good. And like, honestly, they had some great people, like Nate Wolcott and Mike Mogus. Uh, did the score for it, oh, but no I didn't shit. really hear it here. But the thing I got out of it that was mostly were the needle drops. Like I thought that, <laughs> in terms of them actually matching the miniseries, like having Black Sabbath's like changes was for the scene when it's supposed to be crowded houses. Don't dream it's over. I thought that was stellar. I think that's probably my favorite scene of actually maybe the entire series so far. Like I, I just thought it was really well done. You really it kind of encapsulates the trajectories of both of those characters and the the song 
matches the it marries you know sound and screen in a way that don't dream it's over did with all the shots of the apocalypse and everything I, so i i don't know i i that sense i did love that but i agree justin like the the, the lack of score is really kind of like you need more. You need just a little bit more, I think. Yeah, some of the needle drops, they, they become pretty well, prevalent throughout. I, have, and, I do have a question yeah. about that. Is Are they they're at Franny's house? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Is, is it a record they put on? Uh, yeah, it's another record. So yeah. what, what is, does Franny, like, listening to Black Sabbath? No, or dad. Hits? Maybe her dad is. You know? <laughs> he seems like right, a cool yeah, guy. Maybe, maybe, is, yeah. maybe, you know, her dad was listening to, like, you know, uh, like Thin Lizzy while he's burying his wife in the back, or, you know. Um, oh, my God. Oh, <laughs> That's, that's, I thought that was in episode three. You spoiled it. No, no, no. <laughs> Another no, flashback. But, but they do an overhead shot, and you do see, like, other plots next to her dad. So I assume that that was, like, her mom that she buried also. Oh, I just assumed that that was just, like, was that flower be beds. Like a, yeah. Yeah. I, I, well, I just thought sure. that her, her mother was gone at this point. It just seemed Maybe like there were multiple victims. bodies there. Yeah, it could be. Maybe she was killing everyone. She just, like, killed Harold's <laughs> sister. Like, it's, like, at pupil. She's just yeah. killing right. people on the streets. We find out, like, episode backyard. eight. It's like right. actually I was the killer the whole time. It flashes ah, back to his plot. Right. No, like the Franny Dessinger. that loved flowers. Maybe that's the coda. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you she's can in call the well. Me Kurt. Oh my god, Jen. It's called Franny in the Well. Maybe that's where she's taking the bodies, is putting all these Maybe. bodies you know, bodies in the well. Maybe it's an eclipse connection. Yeah, oh, yeah, right? Man. Yeah, she's gonna look up and see Dolores. Stu. Oh, at the very end, like Randall Flags, like call me Dustinder. It's gonna be like the <laughs> it's gonna be like the ending of Goodfellas. Hey Stu, uh, go, go by the well. Go, go, go down no, by the no, well. Go you know. the, look into yeah, the well. <laughs> look I gotta the well. go, Franny. Sorry. There was an eclipse. I gotta go. <laughs> um, uh, Dreamscape for me, uh, one of the, I think something I haven't had a chance to touch on yet that I thought was really effective was the shots of Harold riding his bike mm-hmm. um, throughout Maine, like it, when everybody's dead. Those scenes were really good to me and it really helped establish that this was Maine. I, like, you know, yeah. uh, in... Which isn't horribly important or anything, but we never really get that in the miniseries. I don't think they had the budget to do that. Now you can do drone shots, which are obviously a lot cheaper and easier to do. So, mm-hmm. but yeah, the way that this show utilizes drone shots actually is is pretty effective. Um, again, as I I don't quite feel like the this episode captures the breadth of the of the loss, but the closest it comes to doing that are those scenes when you see Harold 100%. all by himself riding his bike down the coastline like the boardwalk and dead bodies there and just like or even just sort of the 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 dirt paths that he rides down it's it's a really they're really beautiful ways of sort of putting this yeah. one person at the center of so much emptiness yeah justin the the one thing i think about though is the fact that we don't it's hard to get the sense of loss because in reality these people would all be at home yeah yeah so it's hard unless you do like a montage of inside people's houses like dead in bed because i think that's kind of a knock that we've given the miniseries right it's like yeah. everybody's in diners everybody's in their cars <laughs> and then, mm-hmm. but this it makes sense that no everybody would be at home and it would feel totally desolate outside yeah. except totally. for that one presumably hard party or, or maybe even the homeless person who who is dead on the bench mm-hmm. i wish when, that when there was somebody on, on the bench like somebody on the the beach uh you know the, the boardwalk with like an ice cream cone <laughs> just like <laughs> like just like in one just eye melted. like just like Hung over. You know? Yeah, but I agree. No, I mean, if you think about this pandemic, like, what have we been doing? Sitting at home. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. There would be like empty streets. You know? There's something else for, for dreamscapes for me, and it's right there. The dreams. We haven't even talked about the dreams, oh, have yeah. we? Mm-hmm. And I, I kind of like the I like the surre- the surreality, aka budget concerns of the miniseries. <laughs> but I do actually like the corn dreams in there. Yeah, they it just does have that surreal feel to it. But I think 
that it really does look really good here. I'm not sure if it's all real cornfields, but it looks great. And I do have some questions about this. We do seem to be seeing flag as a wolf, yeah, as opposed to um, what, a, a raven or a crow, whatever yeah. it is in the book. I keep forgetting. So what's is that uh, really the the visage he takes in the in this miniseries yeah. is not the bird? Uh, I think it's I think there's a little bit of everything here. I think like uh, the idea of evil the evil animals uh, kind of resurfaces throughout. Jen's laughing. <laughs> I just thought I, I guess they just couldn't get the rights to the birds. Yeah, that's what it was. <laughs> the Dark Tower had the rights, so they yeah, couldn't. Uni- they right. couldn't use it. Universal is like uh, that's yeah. Hitchcock territory. Yeah, get yeah out. or it's just too close to Game of Thrones. Too. Sorry, They're like can't no, do it. That's sorry. funny. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I I I think that I think that speaks actually Justin to the ways in which this series really wants to be a singular telling of this story because it deviates in so many ways that like stylistically, at least, I mean, obviously with the time jumps, but with a lot of the ways that these characters are depicted, like Owen Teague's Herald is very different from Corin Nemec's Herald. Um, And, you know, obviously Odessa's uh, Franny is very different, Uh, but as you'll see, like those are more so uh, performance things, but there are other characters who are like basically, they're given almost an overhaul in terms of uh, their presentation. I don't want to spoil it yet, but you'll see in the next episode, certain characters um, are very much not the ones that like, it's the complete opposite of like what we got in the 94 miniseries or even in um, the book. Uh, And, and, and it just, I, and I think too, they just wanted new iconography for flag. I mean, the, the crow is very much symbolic with the 94 miniseries. We, it's always in all the, you know, the crow sitting on the, the fence or whatever is like a very iconic image of both the cover. And it was on the cover of some of the books too. And so I think that. Brandon um, Lee. (laughs) So I think that. I think that uh, that's them just, again, trying to, you know, stake their own claim. Like, this is our telling of the story. So, yeah, I, and I like the, I think the the starkness of the Vegas dreams, like, with the, I, the Vegas lights are a little bit much, but I like the general, the spotlight, the sort of, the desert setting, the, um, and the way that they've sort of been keeping flag in shadow, I think is pretty yeah. effective, so. And I have no problem with, I, 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 I have no problem with people who are adapting material being so beholden to the book if the changes work the changes work like i'm yeah. not such a stickler for that so yeah godspeed yeah i think another but the way you're saying it, it sounds like it's a real piece of shit going forward <laughs> so i don't know <laughs> it's not i assure you um the another thing i like though and i maybe this just this resonated because uh of our current reality but i liked the idea that you can hear news reports and stuff about mm-hmm. how uh, it's like, oh, it's just a little sniffles. It's just sniffles. Like, we're not going to... Oh, whose voice was that? Oh, I don't know. Don't you feel like that was probably somebody famous? Well, that's probably. why I think... Th- that's the thing. I think uh, a lot of Maybe people that's episode seven you guys was... haven't seen yet. <laughs> no, yeah. But a lot of people during the, the virtual screen were saying that it sounded like Brian Cranston, which is what I thought it actually sounded like when I when we first watched the screener like the week beforehand. And it's it's just an offhand voice. So I do think that they did maybe get some celebrities. Well, it would make sense because, as we all know, Showtime and CBS are affiliated. And Brian Cranston does have a new series on Showtime coming soon. Your Honor. Your Honor. Your Honor. It sounds, uh, like a objection. Court, it sounds like a courtroom comedy, like a sitcom, yeah. <laughs> like, but it's but it's like a drama. <laughs> Your yeah, Honor. It's basically Every Breaking Every episode Bad. ends, court's adjourned. <laughs> oh, God. 
But yeah, I do like this the the idea that of people downplaying um, you know Captain Trips in the same way that people have you know weaponized it in or weaponized virus denial in uh, our current culture. And um, yeah. yeah, just getting those little hints of it. I I and obviously a lot of that maybe they that might be something they like added in post or something like because uh, uh, they filmed most of this before the pandemic. So mm-hmm. um, well, there was a really strange line like you, you thought COVID nineteen was bad, <laughs> which I thought was. Radically offensive and out Ma- of place. Imagine if they did do that, but oh, they like God. did the ADR like over Zoom, so it like it's not even really good quality. So it really does sound like they're just like signaling it in. Would that be? Would you, just, would you have? Would you have turned it off at that point? Like I can't do nine episodes of this. Well, I'm just glad they didn't try to do a Trump thing when they had the president talking. Like they, yeah. they just had the president be a very normal, normal human being. Yeah. And, uh, like he was. Captain clearly... Trips is not a big deal. <laughs> it's wonderful that we've got a wonderful vaccine it's, on the way. It's Alec Baldwin uh... doing it. <laughs> oh God! I don't know what would be worse if it was Alec Baldwin or just Trump's voice. I mean, uh, uh, oh, Baldwin! I'm exhausted uh, with both. Uh, any other nightmares or dreamscapes you wanna you wanna share before we 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 open the creaky gates of the cemetery? I I just gotta say applause to as always to Vancouver. Uh, you know, look, they <laughs> shot six seasons or five seasons. Oh, I guess seven of the X Files if you're counting the two last ones. Uh, Fifteen seasons of Supernatural. This is a great. This city. is such a Mike comment. Like this love, is just, well, you know, well, love, for just a comment, they also had seven seasons of the Vancouver Grizzlies, and they they're still home to the Vancouver Canucks. We love them. We love Vancouver, home of home of uh, Friday Thirteenth Part Eight. Jason takes Manhattan. We love oh Vancouver, yes, yeah. yes, of but, course. But it's just it's wonderful. just really those shots where they're outdoors really does like capture the breadth of this story. Like yeah. you were saying, Randall, like the, you know, not only just the exterior shots for you know what was supposed to be on Gunquit, but like when we go back to Boulder. And there's those beautiful shots with like Teddy Wyzak and um, and Harold sitting there, and they're talking about like you know the drive-in. It is just gorgeous in ways that like the miniseries even couldn't really do. Yeah, um, that uh, the, the band shell awesome. that overlooks the the scenery in Boulder is a, a good uh, awesome. scout scout lo- location oh, yeah. scout find. Yeah, that's when the yeah. scout has like his his or her microscope or telescope <laughs> or microscope out or, or sorry binoculars. Excuse me, and it's just like got it, got yeah. it. <laughs> Call yeah. Josh. And let's just Call say ben. we'll we be it. we'll be returning there later. Um, oh, something about Teddy, which I keep forgetting to bring up, is uh, of course played by Jen's bad boy boyfriend on Dawson's Creek. Oh yeah. Remember? Oh really? I did not that make that connection. And uh, of course, Banner Brothers. Banner Brothers yeah. is a big mm. one. Yeah. I, love- I used to always think. I guess there's like three people that look like him. Um, Henry Cavill kind of looks like him, right? Ooh, like Cavill's it, the, little- the beefy version. He's a yeah. bit of a more steroidy version. Jen, um, calm down. <laughs> Jen, sorry. We're, we're, Jen's popping on the mic. Get a little hot <laughs> so, over here. It's getting a little hot. <laughs> yeah, I love Teddy Wyzak. And I love I, I do love the bit too, like it's just a subtle way that they've moved it into into, you know, twenty twenty, but the idea of the DVDs and the Blu-rays and wanting to set up this drive and watch these movies, that's like a fun recurring bit, uh, as you'll see throughout some of the next couple episodes. And and they do sort of lean in and have a little fun with the idea of like, okay, like it's uh, t- Tom and Stu don't have to fire up an old projector to watch a movie. They can, the, we can actually just throw in a DVD like that shit still works, which is interesting. So <laughs> and it's so in line with the book when he, when they would, when King would have fun with like the scenery and just be like, well, what would you do here? Yeah. And, mm-hmm. and that's, mm-hmm. and I like, so I like that a lot. And the fact yeah. that it's like right in the beginning it's cool. Hey, speaking of that, I'm assuming eventually the electricity will come back. Um, anybody plug in and let it rip. Future episodes. <laughs> Rock and roll style? No spoilers. Oh <laughs> man! Oh boy! Um, I'm like everybody like everybody like is down and out. And they just hear somebody just wailing on the electric guitar. And they're like, "What's that sound?" And they go to that 
<laughs> that beautiful voice. Uh, <laughs> We're Teddy and <laughs> No spoilers. Uh, wow. Let's move it's on gonna happen to now. a little <laughs> section we call the cemetery. What's the bottom of the truth? Well, sometimes that is better. The person you put up there ain't the person that comes back. It may look like that person, but it ain't that person. Because whatever lives in the ground beyond that cemetery ain't human at all. I think we all are going to say the same two words in the cemetery. Is it two words or one word? Uh, <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, I don't even know. I, I Let's go with one it's word. two syllables. Yeah, two syllables. Tube neck. Tube neck. Uh, very, very oh my God. creepy. Love it. And the first time you see it, it is really jarring. Like I know, yes. I know, I like recoiled. I think the first time you see it is Campion, right? Like when yeah, he, I think so. When he falls yeah. out of the car, uh, and it's like so bloated, and, and it's really effective. And then we see it a lot, you know. And you'll continue to see it. Um. So, uh. Ooh. But yeah, we see Franny's dad has it, and then and my oh. favorite Cobb, uh, yeah. Daniel Signata's yeah. character has it, and he gets like his throat cut basically, and just mucus just sprays out. It's yeah. like a really yeah. good effect. I actually do think the the sickness effects in this are really effective. I yes. there's even a bit in episode two I had to cover my eyes up, uh, like as an adult man because it's just really <laughs> disgusting. Um, and also mucus just generally uh, uh, makes me uh, grossed out. So yeah. um, anything b- beyond the actual sickness uh, did anything freak you out here? Well, yeah, Owen uh, Owen's performance. I mean, just yeah. his yeah. facial his facial expressions are fucking terrifying. Um, and I actually, I'm just going to say it right now, I think he's the big baddie uh, mm. of this entire Spoiler series. alert, wow. Uh, I think he's just, <laughs> in terms of just, in terms of like being terrifying um, oh, and okay. like being okay. the real villain, like and actually bringing the, the sort of menace, like Owen Teague is just on a fucking another level here. And those shots him. where he's in front of the mirror and especially even like with like, you know, the typewriter. I mean, yeah. not only did I say, oh, sounds like my Monday, uh, but I also was like, <laughs> You know, th- this is Those pretty are very terrifying. Rothman-esque uh, yeah. dissertations. <laughs> yeah. This guy's this guy's kind of creepy. Um. Well, and that was one of the ones that I had was, and also in my uh, dreamscapes too was. I just love the way they're using that, and I love how they're taking like the parts of his ledger. Like you, I think Mike, you said earlier, it's really hard to project an incel on screen and make him look like a bad guy, and I think they're doing that so well, and it's so creepy. Like the scene where he got the gun and just yeah. the look on his that face. Was a really was so creepy but the one that I think really stood out to me um was the scene where he has the picture of Franny and is it his sister where he just turns it back and then starts jerking yeah and I like it's it's weird but I think it just like really enlightens the character a lot that he he's just he's gross you mm-hmm. know and not that there's anything wrong with that but just it it shows that I think a lot of his motivations and it just it is really unnerving and then the scene where he's wearing like the that terrible outfit it's it's just the juxtaposition the of how goofy and how immature he is yes. yeah yeah it's so it's really unnerving and unsettling and makes me really worried for yeah. Brandy. and i even know what's going to happen and so, i buy him as know. a teenager too which i yeah, like yeah me too um which feels important to me and the yeah he has a general gait with harold like when he walks yeah and you'll see it, it's it's emphasized more in future episodes but he has this gait that i think is really uh it's a bold choice that i think really pays off but yeah they do capture the pathetic nature and the dangerous nature of him like yeah. equally mm-hmm. um and 
yeah, and I enjoy the hell out of that. And, and yeah, but I mean, to me, what's almost creepier is when he's being like the nice guy, like when he's doing yeah. the big mm-hmm. smiles and he's, uh, and he's, you know, just that overly friendly. Yeah, exactly. Just the Mike's doing the Tom Cruise point. <laughs> and it's like, uh. that to me is really effective because like when I meet people like that who are that overly friendly, uh, like performatively friendly, I do not trust them at all. <laughs> so. yep. well, that, that's mm-hmm. like, the, I'm not going to name names, but there's one person that we, we've, we've known in the past that, um, we used to joke saying like, wow, he's so nice that he probably just goes home and just like unwinds by staring at like snow on his television. Um, <laughs> and it's just like, just like just sitting there like that. Cause like no one should be, no, no one should exude that much happiness. Like it's a yeah. little too disarming. Yeah. Yeah. No. Well, and we've been like on psychoanalysis. We're in the middle of talking about killer kids month. And so I think maybe it was killer just on my month. brain. I love that. But joke. like, because <laughs> we it's watched all, that. all nine Children of the Corn movies. <laughs> <laughs> hey, we almost did Children of the Corn, but I oh, like that's a, That's an experience. I, uh. Yeah. <laughs> maybe for future episodes. But it's just the way he's like, it reminded me of um, We Need to Talk About Kevin in a lot of ways. Mm. Oh, you know? yeah. A f- a sure. Fellow star f- uh, of the show. Um. Oh, that's right. Yeah. yeah we, Another problem with mm. a cast member. S- stay of, tuned yep. for Ezra Miller. Um, yeah. Uh oh. No, it's it's um, it's, it's fun. Um, yeah. Any my, Justin? Do you have another cemetery? Well, when I think of it's funny because when I think of the stand, I don't think of it necessarily as a horror book. I think of it there, there are horrifying events that happen, but the the story isn't necessarily horrifying in terms of horror. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Aside from you know the escape from Stovington or the Lincoln Tunnel, I guess those would probably be the real scary set pieces of the novel and even the, the original miniseries. But. When Franny's father rolls over, mm. and the the neck and the sn- also like you hear like kind of gurgling when it like moves, that is so disgusting to mm-hmm. me. Mm-hmm. That yeah. is that's the moment of the episode where I just thought, oh god, they're really gonna go for this tube neck mm-hmm. um, exploration here. And that yeah. that for me was the moment of the episode. Yeah, that's in terms, a of, lot, in terms of spooks. That's a lot yeah. more effective to me than sort of the the yellow the sort of yellowed like yeah. rot of the miniseries. Like the the physical deformation, I think, is yeah. really effective in terms of conveying how nasty this virus is. Um, yeah. Any other cemetery bits? I thought it was pretty sad that the guinea pig's probably just going to die alone there. I know, poor Geraldo. I'll probably start eating its own. Sure. Yeah. And love her all first. I'll be, be able to live a little bit longer. Um, hey, it's speaking God. to Lloyd's backstory. Uh, yeah. with is the it Hot Lloyd? Is, Hot Lloyd? Hot Lloyd in the miniseries? Oh, I'm to... so excited to talk about Lloyd next week. I'm oh, so. No, uh, oh, no that's. It, it, we're going to have so much fun. Um, oh, no. <laughs> oh, no, no. Let's just say bold, bold choices. Oh, um, no. This is. Oh, God. <laughs> Stop um, talking about it. Okay. <laughs> Let's move on to... We've been through the cemetery. It's time to have a little walk through King's Dominion. There's another world out there. I know there is. Welcome to King's Dominion. This is where we discuss uh, nods to the larger King universe in here. Um, but I also think that this section could work as... Because I was just thinking, I, there was a little detail in this episode that harkens to uh, a thing I always liked in the book. And it's not necessarily King's Dominion, but it's a it's a bit from the book that they used mm-hmm. that is a really subtle, small, special moment. And I actually love that they do it. So I figure if we have any of those, we can share them here as well. And well, I'll just start. Is, what is it? Yeah. It's what, uh, what, what... when Franny uh, is by herself in her house and she's already yelled at Harold to leave. And, and then she's at her window and she can hear him typing 
uh, because everything's yeah. so quiet. Like, there's no, because there's no ambient noise from, like, electricity or anything, too, because uh, Ogunka lost power. And so everything is just dead quiet, and it's so quiet she can hear his typewriter, which is, like that's, that. that's, a, that's a detail from the book um, as well. And I always thought that was really effective um, in the book just to convey, like, the sense of, you know, how quiet and empty everything is. And, uh, and it does speak to that idea of, like, the end of the world being this, like, limp thing rather than this explosive thing. And so, yeah, that was a, a section I really enjoyed. But any other uh, references oh, to the ki- larger oh, King yeah, universe? I mean, come on. There Here we lot. go. Well, first of all, actually, <laughs> uh, this is more of just a allusion to a character. There's a Dark Man poster. Mm. Yeah, hanging in the house that Teddy and Harold are inspecting at the beginning. Oh, I didn't catch that. Wow, yeah. I didn't either. The Dark Man, obviously, a well, good friend, RF. Well, also, who was that directed by? Uh, uh, Mr. Sam Raimi, the director of? Well, also... No Stephen King <laughs> but, no, me, but he was also in... Uh, he, was, he, was he was in the Stan also in the miniseries. So. You're right. Bobby Terry. Um, uh, I've got some more. I mean, yeah. I, well, Jen, I think, Jen, is there anything that you yeah. caught? Yeah, well, I caught one dumb one. I just want to point out that he says T-1000, which is not King's Dominion, but it is a reference to the greatest movie of all time. So Jen's Dominion. Jen's uh, Dominion. That's true, yeah. Jen's Dominion. Jen's yeah. Dominion. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Mike, yeah, are there like any it. that you caught? Yeah, so um, there's, I mean, uh, like the Cemetery Dance one was pretty cool just because, yeah. you know, that's, uh, that's, our, uh, that's our boy uh, like, Richard These Chismar. are Easter eggs um, that are fun, Mike, because if you don't know what Cemetery Dance is, it doesn't affect the story, no. yeah. but if you do, right. it's a fun, yeah. you know, it's a fun little nugget. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the the other one I saw was, um, you know, I think you already mentioned it, Justin. The, the King Crimson, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, Dairy and Sons. Oh yeah. Yep. There's a store Antiques. called Dairy and Sons. Yeah. They couldn't um, do like Straker. Straker. Uh, no. Barlow <laughs> Straker. Yeah. Jen, what do yeah. you have? Well, I think the big one that I found was a reference to on writing, which is the nail that yep. he puts his rejection yeah, slips that's on. A good one. Yeah. which is a true story from King's past. And I, hmm. the on writing is one of the very few books that I do not have a physical copy of, but I tried to find the quote or the part where he was talking about that. And so I found just a tiny quote from that where he says, um, by the time I was 14, which 14, geez. Um, by the time I was 14, the nail in my wall would no longer support the weight of the rejection slips impaled on it. I replaced the nail with a spike and went on writing. Which <laughs> wow, that's pretty much love. Yeah. Yeah. Straight from yeah, yeah. I, I caught that as well because I always that was something that resonated with me from on writing was the nail yeah, in the too. wall. Yeah, when I was a kid. Yeah, uh, Justo, what else do you got? There was one other thing. Um, Mac actually caught this, and I don't I don't have access, so I couldn't really watch it again. But apparently, the 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 gas station that they're at in Arnett is is run by a handscomb. Oh, that's cool. Really? Oh, that's cool. yeah. Unless he misheard it, but I think well, they said something about handscomb. It's Hap is the like it. What's Dude, the like, guy's? It's no, it's Hapscomb is the name of the guy who runs oh, the. That's yeah. written, and it wasn't Hanscomb. Well, yeah, it's Stephen still... King's similar character, similar sounding names. <laughs> Drogan, yeah. Drogan, Drogan, and Dorgan. Mm-hmm. Dorgan. Oh God. <laughs> well, there is. I mean, the price of the typewriter is two seventeen. Um, oh. Uh, oh, I didn't catch that. The the countdown, but then they also do the other one because at the countdown at the end was two thirty seven, um, mm. where when it opens up and everything, um, which is a reference to Stanley Kubrick's The Shining. Oh yeah, I forgot about that. <laughs> Happy fortieth, by the way. Um, um, oh, one, I do have one more thing. I do have one more yeah. thing. Is that near the end? I think it's which hot doctor is it? I think it's uh, Denninger <laughs> or the Denninger kind of character, uh-huh. Ellis. Nice I think he says, Deninger. "It feels like we're the last men standing here." 
and it is coincidentally the final season of Fox's Last Man Standing, <laughs> starring real-life trash can man Tim Allen. So I don't know if that was a deliberate nod or... Well, I didn't like, want to... It, it's, it's, it is cross-promotion, though. It is cross. Fox versus yeah. CBS. Yeah, yeah. I don't know how they feel about that, but... What it if, could have uh, been really cool paid promotion. What if Tim Allen played Randall Flagg? Well, oh, I believe it. Because Randall Flagg's too smart. Well, I know it's we, Wilson, and it's just like he's behind a fence or like oh behind God. a rock or something. Look, I know I like we were. I'd like to keep Tim Allen behind the fence. Well, we, I know yep. we left the cemetery already, but here's a scary thought that I had the other day while watching um, uh, Christmas with the Cranks. Um, is Tim Allen has at what least a five? Yeah. <laughs> I had five, five major revenue streams that this guy pretty much has pulled from, which is Home Improvement, Toy Story, as you already mentioned, Last Man Standing, uh, the Santa Claus series, um, and then also his stand-up, which he yeah. did in the, in the 80s. I thought so. you were going to say In Christmas with the Cranks. <laughs> in like Christmas with the Cranks. syndication mummy Here's between a, that and Jungle the Jungle. I just love the sentence. Here's a scary thought I had while watching Christmas with the Cranks. <laughs> you could have stopped right there. It's right, just like, exactly. Talk about, talk about a guy that, uh, like Flag is is unstoppable. Um, yeah. Hey, yeah. he's getting quite the glow up too. Yeah. You know. Speaking if of flag, Chris Evans could play me. I'd be okay. Speaking with of flag, I'm gonna. I'm. Go, there's not much of him in this episode. We do, no. but we do get glimpses here. And this is a, a place for me to drop this thought, uh, which I I I didn't quite know where to share. But I I hated that the door doesn't close to lock in Campion, and that's a malfunction in the book yeah. and the miniseries here mm-hmm. Randall Flagg's foot is stopping the door. Yep. This is a seismic choice because it is because Randall finds he doesn't usually start right. off events. He usually stumbles in and causes the chaos. He's yes. a chaos agent. And this, yeah. this to me, I'm going to be doing like a page to screen piece, like a adaptation piece after the series wraps for the AV club. And this might be like my thesis is like, what are the implications? And I think it ties into my larger concept of like what flag represents and what mother Abigail represents. And, um, but yeah, the, the, the idea that he is the instigator of basically mm-hmm. this apocalypse to yeah. me is a misunderstanding of Randall Flagg. Like mm-hmm. he is somebody, he is an opportunist. He is a, somebody who capitalizes on uh, tragedy. And I think it ties into larger themes about that King does where he can write really terrifying villains, but oftentimes they are horrible organizers. Like they are horrible yeah. businessmen. Like they are well, horrible at building an evil institution. That is something that uh, that King touches on in a lot of his works where the the chinks in the armor are usually bureaucratic or like institutional. And that to me is super interesting. And this to me, like the idea that Flag started this apocalypse and isn't trying to shoddily capitalize on it is, mm-hmm. is almost like uh, it betrays that theme. And it gives Randall Flagg too much credit. You know what I well, mean? Well, I think th- th- to but play I, devil's advocate, yeah. you could probably make a pun in there somewhere, is, <laughs> again, this could be two things. One is, once again, Josh Boone is really trying to get away with the page, get away from mm-hmm. the page Randall Flagg. Maybe this is a deliberate choice. Again, I've only seen the first episode, so I'm not sure how much they really follow through on him being such an instigator. Yeah. Um Two is there was a deleted scene, of course, when when Stu is getting lost trying to escape the facility, and the mother mm. Abigail says it's that way. 
Ah, to get out. And I thought, ooh. you know, if you're going to keep if you're going to keep Randall Flag in there from doing that, you should keep in the Mother Abigail stuff. Well, I, I guess controversial the, decision. I guess in a sense to keep on the devil's advocate thing. I think the one thing I would say because I agree, like I don't like the idea that he they, they held the door, but I guess you could make the argument that that he's taking opportunity of the chaos here and and just further you know embellishing it, which is what flag does if you think mm. about it but here's the thing if you do we now do we assume that with that mindset and you go back to the 1994 miniseries when the crow is at the gate would you make the argument that that's flag also influencing the idea that the gate because the gate does well it's not like the fuck that because the gate's not gonna even if the gate rolled forward it's not like champion's gonna st- like it's gonna hit the gate and it would stop but like i love the idea does, of the bird like pecking yeah. at the gate <laughs> yeah <laughs> right <laughs> Oh, but he, he keeps like it keeps like looking to the left to make sure it's not yeah right. But there is that there is that idea that he's you know flags there and he's yeah. waiting yeah. and watching this to happen at least in the miniseries because you don't really necessarily get that sense when you're reading the book like you just assume that the, the events are happening yeah right Jen. And well and there's like the to tie it kind of to insomnia like I think kind of an overarching theme in King's work is that there's the purposeful and there's the random mm. and I've always kind of seen flag as just kind of uh, like he just exploits the random yep. you know and here I do think and I don't know if I like it better or worse either way because yeah. um, I'm just blinded by the beard but like I <laughs> Love, it, it feels like he's kind of switching. Jen's going to Vegas. Bit. Let's just be oh, honest. Oh man, I you know All, he would just have to step out of the shadows, and Jen would be okay. I'm going to go They're to like, Boulder and start my life again. And then well, you, she's well, you got the black shirt, like, and you know, it, how's the I neon? Mean, how are the neon lights? Let's right. Go. Yeah. Just don't ever shave that beard. Sorry. Yeah. So I think that's an idea I'm going to be chewing on for a little bit, but because for me, yeah, it's like that's interesting. Because because it, it is like it's not the 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 virus like being released in the in the lab it's it's campion it's the malfunction that's what causes Mm -hmm. the apocalypse and so the fact that they give randall flag that power to me is like a misunderstanding of flag i agree i'm imagining now randall because he's obviously already in the lab right yeah he keeps the door open now i'm imagining like a full lab coat like face mask but but he's got like the the dumb smiley face button he's like mixing chemicals together and then like when nobody's looking like uses his boot and like kind of like tips over a table like oops it's like oh hot genius god. what if his name tag said like dean koontz on it oh or my god. So, D- D- koontz. i have i have one <laughs> last question koontz. that i figured we could pose in this section and i think this would be good because we had teddy wyzak in this episode who was originally played by stephen king now it's been confirmed mm. that king is going to have a cameo in this and it's also been confirmed that mick garris is going to have a cameo a cameo in this a campion in this a cameo in this um <laughs> where do we think now that we know that he's not that King is obviously not playing Isaac, where do we think King's going to pop up in this miniseries? I'm not sure about King, but I think Mick Garris is going to return to the assembly hall like he did in the 94 version. <laughs> but this time he's going to be the one that says, "We will, Stu." <laughs> I he's can only his hope. moment to shine. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't what about I, you, Randall? What do you, where do you think King is going to pop up in this? I mean, without you can't and ask also consider. I know, but like, but you could still make the <laughs> guesstimate of like now that we know because we still. I think Stephen King will reprise his role as uh, the bus driver from Golden Years. <laughs> um, oh, I hope so. Yeah, so he survived the plague and he's still driving people around in his bus, taking them to Boulder because he's a good man. Nice. That's good uh, of him, though. Yeah. What if he's maybe he's the voice of Kojak? Ah, oh, that'd be good. I would appreciate that. I would I don't love know about it. this. I don't know about this, Glenn. <laughs> don't leave me behind, please. Sorry, that's not. I uh, uh, there. 
Now it's king. <laughs> the only dog left alive is this one, and it talks. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I've I was... never even been to Maine. <laughs> <laughs> Don't go in that cave, Udo. <laughs> Uh, Sorry, I'm, I'm gonna make the I'm gonna make the 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 bold assumption that he's gonna Wait, be playing the once doctor. Again, you've seen six episodes. <laughs> I, I have, but th- this is something who's I left have... to introduce at this point in the show. Well, th- th- that's true, but yeah, I guess so, so that's fair. But at this point, having seen all of it, I'm gonna assume well, that he's, he's gonna playing. Be, he's gonna be the doctor that delivers Franny's yes, baby. Yes, that's what I was gonna say. That's exactly what I was gonna say. <laughs> he's like, not only did I deliver a new ending. Franny, uh, a new baby. Eh, eh. <laughs> and then, what if it's just him sitting in an armchair, just like saying, "Now here are the grander implications for all of this." Like, oh god, it's just uh, him. It's him at Harold's typewriter saying, "The end." Oh <laughs> god, and then he throws it off like the the the, the paper f- like f- like uh, floats, and then it goes like a boom, Cavill production or whatever. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, um, um, for, the, for the film company. Well, yeah. boom, listeners, boom, listeners, please uh, let us know on social media where you think King might pop up in this story. We would mm-hmm. love to hear that. Um, and I think that's a good opportunity to move into our final thoughts. Dad, can we go now? You ready? Yeah, we've been ready for an hour. <laughs> okay, I'll be right there. You said that a half hour ago. Yeah, my dad's weird. He gets like that when he's writing. In final thoughts, we share our final thoughts on this episode of The Stand. We're also going to share our episode MVP as well. Um, so, uh, Mike, why don't you lead us off here? How many bright red Pennywise clown noses do you give this episode? So we're going out of five for this, right? Yep. I'm going to go with four. Uh, I think this is a solid start. Uh, I, I think there's a, a cinematic quality that allows us to kind of uh, get what, what, what could have been with a, a feature film because that's originally where this started out. Uh, love, um, you know, I, I think the, the structure and format is a refreshing take on the source material in the sense, at least right now in this first episode, um, allowing us to have some sort of surprises and different perspectives that we coming into a series that we know damn well, <laughs> especially us where we've dedicated, I think at this point, maybe 40 hours, uh, to oh, wow. just the miniseries, probably. Um, almost up to your rewatching of Breaking Bad 50 hours. <laughs> I know it's, 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 it's getting up there. 250 um, hours. You know, it's it's uh it's it's definitely getting out there. But um, yeah, I I mean for me this is a it's always been a performance driven uh, series back in '94 it was and back now, and I am just kind of blown away by the, by the performance in this. And I gotta say the the MVP is really hard to fit to pick because I think I just gotta go with oh my boy Owen Teague. Um, even though I think that Odessa Young is just phenomenal in this episode, but I think she's she's gonna have a really great episode coming up. So just I'll I'll save it for, uh, I'll give it to Owen. Justo, your rating and your MVP. I would also give it a four out of five. It was a really solid start, like Mike said. I was, you know, I've been going back and forth on how I was going to feel about the series. But again, I've only seen the first episode, but it's a pretty strong first episode. Specifically, I do think for people who are already familiar with the source material, yeah. I don't know how people who aren't familiar with this are going to not just react to it, but are they going to be able to? F- really follow along as well as the four of us have. Yeah. And I'm sure other people on the podcast have. My MVP, though, is actually somebody we haven't talked about. That's Richard Rubenstein, ah. who, if you know this, um, besides Stephen King, is probably getting more money off of this. Like, once again, he has been involved since Romero's days in trying to make this happen from 40 years ago. He got an executive producer credit on the 94 miniseries, and he gets an executive producer credit on this series. Wow, does he really? That's yeah. crazy. Congratulations, so congratulations, Mr. Rubenstein. 
for jumping on that Romero ship 50 years ago <laughs> and not doing a bunch since, but you figured it out. So congratulations to you. <laughs> and uh, we, we haven't said enough. I think this cast is absolutely beautiful, and I admire them, and I'm jealous of how attractive everybody is. So I think those are the real MVPs of the world, as the uh, cast of, of, of The Stand, CBS's, CBS All Access is The Stand. <laughs> Jen, your rating and MVP. I think... I, I think I'm going to give this episode a four and a half bright red Pennywise clown noses because I know I, I it probably feels like I've talked down a little bit to it, but I think the biggest problem with this episode is I wanted more, which I think is kind of the mark of a really strong episode. Mm. I think what they did was just great given like kind of what you said, like hammering it and putting it back together. And I think it's, it's a bold choice with something that I really love that I think mostly works. Um, and I'm really excited to see where it goes and, and a little terrified because I don't want it to go downhill from here. But um, my MVP, I think, has got to be Owen Teague. Like, I just mm-hmm. way to bring to life such a complicated character that I've been kind of obsessed with for the past, like, five years. So, yeah. Yeah. Just to read Well, there's one something to, to bounce off of the time, like Jen said, is there are so many shows I watch now where I just groan when I see it's like a 57-minute runtime. Uh-huh. But for this, I thought, this is a solid hour. Yeah. And I, like you said, Jen, I, I could have kept watching. I was, yeah. never, I was never bored. I was never checking my watch, seeing when it was going to end. Yeah, I mean, I'll say this for, uh, and Mike, I think you had a similar experience. When we got the first four episodes, I watched the first three in one night, and I would have watched the fourth, but I just got tired. Uh, so, yeah, it's it's got a binge quality to it. Um, and these are, they're all an hour long. And I, I so, you know, for as much as, as uh, we're going to be, discussing sort of what works and what doesn't over the next mm-hmm. um the next several weeks i i will say that it's it was very compulsive watching so mm-hmm. so yeah and that first episode for me i'm gonna give it i'm gonna go with jen i'm gonna go four, four and a half uh it's one of the better first episodes of a series i've seen in a long time i think it really does a good job of of shaking things up building out characters that speak to the larger themes and good performances um not perfect you know again i would have i would have rather had more world building instead of the general starkey scene which to me just didn't contribute much and a few other things that i and the the general Cobb thing like that that was just half-baked you know um i would have rather had um you know uh the stovington escape which is, yeah. you know, an iconic bit. But here they said, we're going to do something else, which I appreciate the bold swings throughout. And so for that reason, I think the boldness, I'm going to give this episode a four and a half bright red Pennywise clown noses. And uh, my MVP, I, I I would go with Owen Teague, obviously, uh, because he's great, but he's gotten a lot of love already. So I'm going to go with Ian Bailey, who plays Teddy Wyzak, because I love this guy. He's just, he's, he's sweet. And now I, that I found out he's got a Dawson's Creek connection, yeah, I mean, sign I mean, me up. I mean, we're talking. This guy shows up to Dawson's Creek. <laughs> <laughs> this guy's wearing like a hawk wardrobe. He's wearing like the black leather jacket. He's got that black Ooh. shirt on. He shows up with the dock. He's like, Jen, you know, you still want me. He's that type of a jerk, you know. <laughs> I do think it is indicative, though, of how this series throughout uh, what I've seen, uh, some of its best performances are just oddly like these really small roles. They get, they got like a real. They did whoever cast it did a really good job with with making sure that like even the smallest roles got like uh, really talented people behind them. And that, you know, that's always nice because sometimes, you know, supporting characters can just fade into the background. Do all the leads work? That's a question we'll discuss on future episodes. So oh, on God. that. I'm already dreading this Lloyd Henry thing. This, I'm so this, this excited soft reveal. to talk about Lloyd. I'm not going to. Uh, 
tip Mike, my hat Mike, you look, look kind of stone-faced about it. Am I going to reveal? We don't want to reveal too much. Um, I already revealed way to too much. It's Nat Wolf, right? Is Lloyd Henry? Yes. Oh, Nat yeah. Wolf. Uh, I'm well. very excited to discuss it next week. Uh, we'll be back next week. Mike, are we back next week? With yeah. stand episode yeah. two, we're back next week. Uh, thank tons you. of content. Yeah, tons of content. We've also got an interview with Disgraceland, uh, the founder of podcast. Remind me of his name, Mike. Jake Brennan. Yeah. Jake Brennan from Disgraceland. We spoke with him. Uh, great interview. Turned out really, really well. So uh, stay. Check that out. That's already out, right, Mike? Oh yeah, yeah. It's already, it's been in the feed uh, for the last few days. So that's, that's for uh, yeah. So check that out. Really great interview. And stay tuned for more stand coverage. We've got plenty on the way. And um, yeah, and then once we finish with the stand, we're hopping into our coverage of Desperation and the Regulators. We've got some really fun ideas planned. Of course, that'll be next year sometime. Uh, but you know, that's the that get reading with that unless you're rereading the stand like I am right now. So uh, shall we sign off? Long days and, and, and pleasant, pleasant nights. Nice. We did it. I got some hot friends. I got some hot friends. I got some hot friends.